Hello and welcome to Cinema to the Letter. This episode, it's that new film known as Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. Cinema to the Letter, we break down the very nature of cinema, letter by letter. For each episode of a film and a series topic, we cover six films that fit a C for classic, I for an indie, N for new, E for egregious, M for masterpiece, and A for atypical. Because who doesn't love an acronym, am I right? I am Thomas, and this is freaking Cinema to the Letter. <laughs> uh, I am Brian, and I... I'm not going to start with a Radiohead reference, although it would be very on brand for me. <laughs> Inappropriate, you know, especially if you do an acoustic cover that doesn't have the "What the fuck am I doing here?" <laughs> bit in there. Yes. <laughs> but yes, welcome everybody to uh, the latest episode of the Letter, where we're in the middle of our Disney series here, and uh, we are covering the end for new pick. And we were kind of talking about this off mic uh, when we get to our between the lines segment. We were kind of struggling for, like, a good Disney movie to recommend, necessarily. Um, not that they haven't made anything good, but there's not a lot of, like, truly interesting stuff to recommend out to people, I would say, of, like, the recent crop of the... With our rules of 2020 forward for right. new picks. Uh, Biz Slim Pickens. It was, yeah. And uh, this movie had come out kind of recently, and we were kind of trying to fit in and at least one MCU movie because it, you know, it, it it's just the biggest thing on the planet. And, uh, and it's most of Disney's like theatrical output at this point. Exactly. Right. Frankly, and so like, because they're not star Wars is behind a wall. They're not coming right. to theaters anytime soon, no matter what yeah. they'll say at D 23 is like, I'll come whatever. Um, and then, you know, there'll be stuff like, uh, mostly it's some of the 20th century movies that they put out. Like, Right, been, like theatrical releases, really, because uh, yeah, but most of it's been the the Marvel stuff, which you know, we gotta talk about it. So, throughout, <laughs> like, if you've heard me, like, in my journey in podcasting, where originally I, I liked the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, I was a fan. I was kind of invested in seeing them plot along, and then that changed. I'm curious, Brian, especially what's your history? With the MCU, because I think this is another thing where the sort of age difference thing we have, I think, will be very critical because you were actually a child when these movies were coming out. Yeah, and I remember not really being as invested. I think I, I this was a time when I really wasn't going to the movies a lot, but I remember really tuning in for the Avengers in 2012. And like, yes. like the rest of America, I, we, it was just this massive event um and really i had watched like the first you know iron man incredible hulk thor those kind of initial ones i had watched them at home on like dvd you know like you know just rent them but when i watched the avengers in theaters I mean, it felt big and it felt like this big moment of course and that really was kind of where i 
started to kind of become interested in these movies. Um, I'm not a huge comic book fan. I've dabbled a bit here and there. I've read a few comics, but like, it's such a big like world to get into. Um, Yeah. But like you, this was like, I was so interested in these, the the directors they were getting to make these things were at least interesting at the time. And it was interesting to see them build this cinematic universe. And it was something that was unheard of at the time. And yeah, it just kind of, the fatigue really sets in. Um, And we can kind of talk, I'm kind of curious to hear about when the fatigue sets in for you, I'm curious if it's similar to me, but I, I'm, I'm curious if it's your history with the uh, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Well, I was in high school uh, when the first Iron Man came out, um, and I remember the, that summer of 2008 was is very crucial for like one just modern blockbusters in general in the last 15 years, uh, but also for me, I was just like really invested. That was the summer I got like the Entertainment Weekly summer movie preview guide. And okay. I was like, yeah. wow, I got to like, I got to check off the list. I got to like see as many of these as I can. And you know, sometimes you get your Iron Mans, which are big surprises mm-hmm. where I remember seeing the first Iron Man and feeling like, wow, this feels different than like a lot of other Marvel movies. And I did revisit that along with a couple other movies. And it is amazing going back to that movie and seeing how not necessarily quaint it is, but how just like small scale and right. intimate that movie is. It's like, it's basically like a fucking Altman movie where occasionally people are in robot suits because <laughs> people were just like talking on top of each other and it just, it, it felt so new and different for for that particular era where we mm-hmm. had been used to like, you know, the same Rami Spider-Mans and something like the 2000s era comic book movies and then I remember it being so new to me. The credits started and I'm like, well, I'm going to get out of here. You know, the credits are mm-hmm. here. There's no right. reason to stay. And then going back home and seeing on YouTube, everybody's like, there's a post credit scene at the end with Samuel Jackson. I'm like, what? Crazy. <laughs> a thing after the credits? What is this, Ferris Bueller? That's nuts. <laughs> that doesn't happen now. Um, but yeah, and then I saw Iron Man a second time. And from there, yeah, I watched, I would say, every single one of these in a theater up to a point. And I think for me, in terms of like sort of the the fatigue, I think it's a number of things that, you know, are partially because of, like, the culture Marvel created, where, like, I was deep into, uh, like, screen junkies and other, like, YouTube channels that talked a lot about these superhero movies and kind of the development of them and, like, following, right. like, slash film a lot at that time as well. I was just like, oh, they're, they're announcing this guy's gonna be in this movie and then it's gonna, like, kind of cross over here. Because I'm with you that, like, I didn't read comics nearly as much. Like, most of my exposure to people like Spider-Man and even Iron Man were like, there was an, a 90s era, not just Spider-Man cartoon, but an Iron Man cartoon that was yes, yeah, similar style, very odd. Um, and I was like, I've never seen this guy. Like, because, you know, obviously, like, pop culture allows you to be invested in, like, Spider-Man and the Hulk and, you know, the bigger guy. Captain America, even, I was vaguely aware of. The right. guy with the shield, whatever. When we got to these movies, I somehow became so invested and just like the, oh, this is like going to pay off here. This is going to pay off here. Like all the, the setup is so intricate and so airtight. There's no bit where they're like, no, that didn't happen. Stop it. No, we didn't, we didn't, we're not doing anything with that. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> like no better example of that to me is like when Thomas Kretschmann appeared in the post credit scene for Winter Soldier. And I'm like, oh, he's okay. going to be like the villain, right? They're saying, well, because he's got right, yeah, uh, Elizabeth Olsen and Aaron Taylor Johnson captive. And like, oh, they're going to like go onto his compound. He's going to be like the big villain. And he like gets very unceremoniously bumped off during the opening of like Age of Ultron. 
Yeah. But but anyway, yeah, just so that that sort of thing, like I was very invested in all that. I think just after a certain point, it, it became a thing where like when Iron Man came out and then the sort of cinematic universe thing built all the way to Avengers, it just felt like, oh, this is a solid new thing that I can watch in addition to, you know, other things that are in theaters like romantic comedies, right. comedies in general, um, you know, thrillers that were made for adults, you know, stuff like that. Just like, oh, this is fun. Touchstone. Right, exactly. And then as, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe train builds up and Disney acquires it, we should mention, didn't start with Disney. Yeah. Paramount. Mm-hmm. If you watch the early ones where <laughs> I just love that deal where it was like, hey, uh, Paramount, we want to buy the Marvel movies off of you. And they're like, oh, what's our th- Our logo's got to be in front of them. <laughs> uh, deal? Okay, <laughs> great. <laughs> so much money off this one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, right. Um, yeah. As like you know, Disney buys them, and we end up getting like this universe building. It becomes very clear that because it's so successful consistently, a lot of other studios are trying to rip them off, trying to make cinematic universes, diverging money away from interesting movies to kind of make that. And I think that also really hurt. Marvel to me where it just becomes when it becomes like the homogeny and just like the familiarity it really being wonky for me I would say around really Infinity War which I just felt Interesting. like this is supposed to be like another big like everybody comes together movie even though I hadn't loved Age of Ultron and stuff like that but okay Infinity War this is gonna be the big saga and Thanos and I remember liking it at the time but feeling very hollow about that ending Obviously, because I'm just like, yeah. oh, they're going to like come back. Or, like All these characters, like, Black Panther just made a billion dollars in, like, three months. <laughs> they're going to bring him back. It's still playing, like, two theaters down. You can go yes, see it right, right. now. Right. <laughs> and doing very well. Yeah. Still in, like, May. Um, right. But, yeah, so th- and then, like, I was still invested enough for, like, my endgame. And truly mm-hmm. feeling that weird sort of satisfaction of just, like, oh, my God. Well, it all culminated and... and it just in this beautiful payoff and I'm so grateful. And then fucking Spider-Man far from home coming out like two months later. Yeah. I think just made me realize, Oh, this isn't going to end. And then we had a break in 2020 and then we never got a break after that point. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, for me, like, I don't know. I start to become a little suspicious around the time of like civil war. Um, because I, I did like age of Ultron and I still, I like some elements of that movie, but cancel that's a whole another cancel. <laughs> there's look, there's a lot to discuss with that movie, but like I, I was in, I, again, guardians had, had come out and it was a huge hit. And I, that first Ant-Man movie is great. And I was interested in Dr. Strange and guardians too, but like, I, I don't know. There's something about civil war and even a little bit with homecoming and Thor Ragnarok where I was like, I don't love these as much. And I'm kind of becoming uninterested in like the craft of these where like these don't even they don't look as good the quality is starting starting to you know kind of not be as 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 good as it was because you watch a lot of those early marvel movies and like they look really great um i mean a lot can be said about that like they were shooting on film but like the directors were getting to express themselves a lot because there wasn't this kind of pressure of like we have the cinematic universe it's worth a bajillion dollars and everything and yeah like it's been this weird thing for me where i I, i've never just been tuned out completely 
I will always like go back, like you say, for like Black Panther. I was like so invested in that because it seemed so interesting and is so exciting. And then for Infinity War and Endgame, they were kind of like these big event movies again, right? It was like the ones that everyone was going to see, even the people who like had not seen a lot of the earlier ones. They were going to see the the new Avengers movie, and yeah, so it's this weird thing of like I keep getting pushed back in, but then I just don't care about some of the other movies, and it 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 kind of leads us to now where I'm just not as interested. And I think like like you said, like that pandemic break, like should have kind of been the ref- the kind of refreshing, right? It should have been a refreshing break from just so many because that's the other thing is they make so many of these where it goes from like one a year to two a year to three a year and yeah like especially you know since the pandemic black widow on like they're just it's been so much and i've just kind of lost interest in in the whole thing i think yeah i would say i also have but like civil war i loved in theaters i'm like this is the best five out of Mm -hmm. five and with each watch it's kind of been like oh okay it's a bit yeah. worse, a bit worse, a bit worse to now where I'm just like, it's fine. I don't know. Like, I, I have it as, like, a sort of similar, not too far off from Age of Ultron, even though they're just very different movies. They're kind of, like, right. the worst parts of, like, each version of, like, what a Marvel movie can be in terms of, like, their universe building and the kind of familiar jokes the and stuff like that. But, like, it is it is weird where I would say, like, the pandemic year, which you can, if you're a patron over at Cinema number two letter patreon.com slash cinema number two letter um you can hear the backlog of the old double edge double bill stuff and there was a point where like we covered on the patreon like all the marvel things um, not all of them we did wandavision and then the four movies that came out that year and if you listen to those you can track me losing interest in that particular year <laughs> i think because also like having the tv shows was in theory right. like an interesting, like, oh, this is a side thing that we can dig into. But that first year where they're coming out the gate with like, here's WandaVision, here's Falcon Winter Soldier, here's Loki Season 1, here's What right. If, one of the worst fucking television experiences I've ever had in my life, watching the whole season of What If. Yeah, I couldn't make it past the first episode. I just didn't. I only wanted to watch it because Chadwick Boseman right. was last Right, pretty much, yeah, that's the only thing, I only reason I watched it and then I didn't care about the rest <laughs> and for the record i would say that one episode is actually probably the best one of like okay. the t'challa is a star lord instead right what if this happened um and then they have to connect him into the the, the the season finale of this anthology show everybody has all the fake avengers that we saw in other episodes unite i don't care <laughs> why would i care about that the fun is seeing individual characters have different things that's what it, that's the problem really as we keep going on, it feels more and more like we are building this universe first and putting the characters in a secondary spot. Some of those recent right. movies, like they've been, I've liked. Like, I thought Black Panther Wakanda Forever was, like, the best movie you could possibly make under the circumstances. Right, exactly. And then Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is literally, to me, just like, from scene to scene, you're either thinking Sam Raimi is behind the camera begrudgingly waiting for Kevin Feige to leave. And then Kevin leaves, and he's like... He's gone. They all die. They all die horribly. <laughs> Fuck these yes. idiots. Fuck you, John Krasinski. Fantastic Four. Hell yes. Yeah, I mean, like, that. my, my interest in that movie was like, oh, it's a Sam Raimi movie. I, like, I, I truly was not really that interested in, like, another Doctor Strange movie, although I, I like the, the, the first one. I think it's fine. Yeah, but it is, like, it's a Sam Raimi movie, or... 
you know, the first Black Panther movie, although I think it suffers from a lot of the problems from a visual effects standpoint, like I think that movie doesn't look as great, although like the mm-hmm. production design and everything is, is incredible. I think the it's where we start to see the problem that we kind of have now of the Marvel visual effects teams, which they should unionize, by the way. Um, yeah, for sure. That's mainly my interest in like Wakanda Forever was like, okay, this is the first one was great and let's see what you know they can do with this but the like, new ryan coogler film as opposed to the new mcu movie exactly all that as well where he is a really great director and he's one of the the filmmakers who has kind of had a natural progression in this in the mcu right he goes from fruitville station to you know to creed to this right as opposed to having a small small indie movie that barely anyone sees and then making a $200 million blockbuster, which is industry wide to be fair uh, at this right. point. I don't know. I think you can still point to a lot of the problems with major modern blockbusters do come from the MCU, as you can see from that variety article that hit right. um, a few weeks ago in our recording time, uh, which just details a lot of the problems that seem to come from like their slapdash efforts and, you know, just mistreating very talented directors like Anita DaCosta or, yep. um, you know, just other stuff like that. And it's troubling because, like, there's still a part of me, Brian, that wants to see, like, oh, you know what? The MCU is going to make another, like, amazing run of movies. I, I will say at least, you know, spoilers, we're going to be talking about what I think is easily their best movie in quite a while. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think I, I want to have that hope that they can somehow do that. that they can maybe, like, slow down their production Maybe do, right. I don't know, one or two movies a year? Maybe a TV show that you put all your resources onto? Right. Um, it's weird how the MCU kind of feels like the sort of master of its own demise. Where, right. like, yeah. starting out, they were the underdogs. They literally took out a loan from Merrill Lynch to, like, mm-hmm. own their characters and put their characters as collateral. So there's an alternate universe where we're watching some fucking... Thor movie is sponsored by Merrill Lynch. <laughs> ghoulish. A bit more ghoulish than right now. Not too far off. But I think sli- there's a slightly worse world there, I would there say. There is. Uh, yeah. But then, like, yeah, there were these underdogs. They made good. And they were making, like, all these movies that people were invested in. And critics were decently liking for a while. Um, they would throw an occasional risk out there. Your Iron Man 3s. In between, you know, your Captain America Winter Soldiers, there was still a bit more variety, you know, and then creating the homaging that they were doing, and then eventually getting to the point now where they're like, let's reverse engineer this, like, magic that we had before, and we're going to be right. desperate about it. We're going to be, like, introducing characters and fucking TV shows and reshooting entire TV shows, because it's like, no, we have to, like, change it to be this entirely different thing, uh, and introducing characters from previous things. Look, it's Toby and Andrew. You love Toby and Andrew, don't you? You do. Yeah. Yeah. Then that's the thing. That that is, I will say, the moment for me. Spider-Man, uh, No Way Home. I sat there on an opening night, keeping in mind also this was still like this was Omicron COVID, so I was still kind of terrified mm-hmm. of being in a packed theater. And I was literally next to people who, and I don't want to yuck anybody's yum about, you know, you you like Easter eggs and all that other shit. Fine. Sure, yeah, yeah, We need something in this world, right? And you have that. That's fine. (laughs) But when they're just, like, loudly whispering to each other when, like, Matt Murdock shows up in Spider-Man No Way Home, like, oh, my God, it's Matt Matt Murdock. It's not the David of the Devil. A true depressing point for me, especially because I double-featured that with Nightmare Alley 
not a movie that I love necessarily, but the contrast of like going to this very mediocre blockbuster that, quite frankly, at certain points feels like a funnier die sketch, just Absolutely. blown up to two and a half hours, um, particularly in the great green screen quality of it. Um, <laughs> but the, the contrast of seeing that in a full packed house and then going to, I think, a flawed, but at least like a daring, interesting movie where I was the only one, Brian. I may be mm-hmm. one of five people who saw that. The- I assume did you as well? I did not, but mainly because oh. it was it was Omicron, so I was like, right. I I went and saw No Way Home on a like Monday, one p.m. Right. and it was still packed. <laughs> like you were saying, the kind of green screen stuff in like No Way Home and is just kind of the larger, a larger problem that I have with these movies, which is like like you say because they've kind of homogenized themselves basically. They have a similar tone. A lot has been said about the kind of MCU dialogue, the the the, the attempts at humor, and like, I, I can forgive some of that if the movies just looked interesting or visually interesting because these are comic book movies and they should look like comic books. I don't know. I think it needs a gray filter, just a little bit. Like <laughs> even our con- more colorful movies have to have this slight gray filter over it. It yes. just like slightly dulls it because it almost kind of feels like it's it's part of like this thing with like the comic book movie angle of it that like so many of these movies because of like the humor the constant quips it has the energy of just like oh this is stupid right this is still kind of silly right. I mean you're super invested and we want you to be super invested but like look at that these dorks are in costumes your name's Doctor Octopus <sighs> God yes yeah just all all of that stuff is is bad enough on its own but again like. Just the way that these movies have become this gray, like, sludge. And they all look like that. And they all have these final set pieces in these gray, with these gray backdrops. And, and they just look so uninteresting. And then, like, I also revisited a couple of uh, of the Marvel movies. Like, the first Avengers movie, which, like, look, fuck Joss Whedon. But, like... <laughs> Yeah, this is also, I'm confirming all these stances are very much for the show as well. Fuck, just (laughs) Yes, absolutely. But that movie is incredibly well-directed. And the way that that movie shot and just has just, it looks so dynamic. And you don't really get that from a lot of these later movies, except for the movie we're talking about today. And it's yeah, it's one. It's another thing that kind of just makes me uninterested in these. Is 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 that whole thing? I revisited the Avengers as well. I think the climax of Avengers is like amazing. The last hour or so of Avengers, yeah, is like top notch. And I think the rest of it is a very solid TV director doing a blockbuster movie. Yeah. It is well written in terms of like these characters being together. I don't think it's extremely well shot at all necessarily. <laughs> I would disagree. I, I don't know. I maybe it is me kind of just looking back with rose tinted glasses. Yeah. But like, uh, I, I don't know. I, there was something about at least just rewatching the first Avengers movie and just kind of being visually interested in what in the way that it was shot. At, at least that. But I, I also just think, and a movie like Iron Man three, for instance, which has so much personality and so much character in it. Yeah, it does. And this is a very pro Iron Man 3 podcast as Incredibly. well. Incredibly. All you MCU re-watching. fans who are like pulling out your hair, get ready. <laughs> well, and, and yeah, I mean, I look, Iron Man 3 is such a weird movie and it's such an insane movie. And I rewatched it again. That was the other one I, re- I rewatched. And it 
is insane that that movie exists um, and feels so daring and so weird in a different way to like the Guardians movies, but weird in like that movie is so much about like anxiety and 9-11 and just like, <laughs> it's weird. To be fair, the entire, like I would say, because I've revisited along with the Avengers a few other, and right. the first Iron Man. I also revisited like an Iron Man 2, which is terrible. <sighs> very bad awesome. movie. At the same time also, I think all three Iron Man movies are very insane for different reasons, which is not <laughs> yes. a sort of quality you get with a lot of these MCU movies where you have like this Altman movie with superhero stuff in it. Then Iron Man 2 is like a kitchen sink movie. Truly. Just a yeah. fucking throw everything and see yeah. what sticks. Not a lot of it does. Um, most of it does. Sam Rockwell, though. He's pretty good. He is pretty good. But then Mickey Rourke. <laughs> well, he wants his bird. He wants his... Which is my favorite meme, I think, of the MCU. Because it's just like so dumb. <laughs> he just wants his fucking bird. Yeah, it's um, so bad. But then uh, Thor, the original Kenneth Branagh Thor, which I think is fine. That is like sort of my exact middle of the MCU ranking for me. Hmm, like, okay. This is right in the middle. Uh, but to be fair, like uh, like we're talking about kind of the whole like the way that a lot of the modern MCU dialogue undercuts the kind of dramatic tension. Like I kind of yearn for the when these like characters were being handled by Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> like I, right. I actually quite like the kind of Shakespearean stuff in Thor. I really dislike the fish out of water stuff, but like that's a whole other conversation. Um, to the degree that yeah. I am like polar opposite of you. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but anyway, yeah. Then Avengers, Iron Man three, which fucking rules. I Absolutely. think. If not for like the Rebecca Hall problem of it all i think that would be a perfect movie to me then uh thor ragnarok so i skipped a few obviously after that point uh but ragnarok which you know i wanted to rewatch just because like the modern kind of speaking of someone something i've soured on that i really really liked in the early 2010s (laughs) um yeah uh taika watiti i with uh the thor ragnarok of it all though i think that one is still fun but I'm really seeing a lot more of like the kind of deflation elements mm-hmm. of it where it feels just yeah. like we're kind of being snarky a bit more. And to be fair, I think that's a lot worse than fucking love and thunder, which is my Absolutely. absolute bottom, like a terrible abysmal film that like <laughs> all these other MCU movies that are done by like, you know, smaller directors don't get a lot to do at the very least. A lot of the MCU just feels at least competent. And it's worse to me, just like completely sure. fine movies that I can, will never think of again. Most of my bottom ones until this rewatch of a couple things. Like, hot take. I'm going to say it. One of them's Infinity War. I really don't like Infinity War anymore. I, I agree. I think that movie yeah. is so boring and so long. It's literally just like it's an action sequence followed by, hey, did you not see the last couple Marvel movies? Here's a thing. Just so you know. Like, it, that's what it just yeah. feels like alternating between everything. And I don't think Thanos is that interesting a villain at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's fine. He's nowhere near as interesting as, like, some of the best, better villains, of course, like, I mean, we'll talk about one today, but, like, even, like, Loki in the first Avengers movie, or, you know, Mads Mikkelsen even in, like, Doctor Strange or is, is better, in my opinion. And, and, like, speaking of Infinity War, I guess this is also just where we kind of... The Russo brothers. Um, right. Because they have been kind of another reason why i think these movies have just been 
has have gotten worse. And like, look, it's funny because uh, so I I, I did a, a viewing of Community, and like right. fi- I, and I kind of finally watched what the Russo brothers did before the MCU because I didn't really know who they were. I didn't really know that they had come from Community, and I mean we talked about this, but like there are episodes of Community that are directed better than either of the Avengers movies they've made. I just find them to be so incompetent as directors. <laughs> and especially with something like Endgame and Infinity War, like they just really suck all of the life out of all of it. Like just the way they're mm-hmm. directing things, they are kind of, I think the kind of gray sludge that we kind of talked about, like those movies are really bad. Like they are just really hideous looking movies yeah, and I've just been really uninterested with them as directors, and yeah, it's one of the reasons why Infinity War just doesn't work, in my opinion. Yeah, though I will say by contrast, after this Russo bashing, which I want to emphasize, I very much agree with most of that. Except to say, I still really think Endgame's pretty great as like an, an actual ending for all this stuff. I think it's more on the script, obviously, because I see a lot of the Grey Sludge stuff still. It's almost yeah. as if I think this cast and the script and just cultural sort of interest in this movie is blocking them from going too terrible. They're still just, we gotta be a bit terrible. <laughs> like, so everything that actually happens in that final battle, aside from the you go girls, very thin feminism bit of, like, all the female heroes suddenly are in the shot. Aside yeah. from that, I think that ending battle, like, everything that happens in is really great, and I think there are wonderful, like, moments that I still was, like, cheering about. Like, I think... Captain America with Mjolnir. I think it's like too yeah. th- cool a thing to fuck up. That's the thing. It is. That's, that is the thing, right? With that movie where you're just so inherently like invested because of it's, it's the culmination point. All these characters finally together, even though all these actors weren't in the same room together, but whatever. What are you um, talking about? No. I totally believe that Brie Larson was in every single set of this <laughs> movie that she appeared in. <laughs> but like, yeah. And so... it's inherently entertaining where like it is like anyone could have directed that sequence and at least it would have been like okay but i i i will agree i i'm kind of half and half on endgame i like some elements i really dislike others but i will at least concede that it is i i think it's a very fitting kind of you know culmination point of like all these other what like 20 something movies that have come before it i think it's once again just a factor of like the it's Marcus and McFeely, I believe, are the two screenwriters that were like on a bunch of these movies, like right. since around like Age of Ultron or some shit like that. They've been around for no, it was ever since Winter Soldier. That was their first one. Winter Soldier, yeah, right. Winter Soldier was their first one. They've been around, kind of riding the ship this whole time, and I I think they at least knew like we have to keep our investment in this. And I think all the actors are also just so invested. Like I love all the scenes. Like, the best scenes in that movie aren't really in the battles as much as just, like, Tony meeting Howard Stark and them talking briefly. Just that weird magic of just, like, you get to meet, like, your parent who died. Like, that's way more inherently investing. Or, like, fucking Captain America and Agent Carter dancing at the end of that movie. Yeah. I think that's a genuinely great just culmination. Like, that's it. That To the degree that, like, when I watched it again, I'm like, I have no interest in watching any more of these movies that aren't from a certain director. Who, I think we should finally get to that, Brian. We've talked a lot about MCU. We'll still be talking about the MCU, I'm sure, in comparison to uh, one of the more recent efforts, Guardians of the Galaxy. 
Volume 3. We were gone for quite a while. But no matter what happens next, the galaxy still needs its guardians. Hello, we come in peace. Come on, Drax. Seriously, dude? No, dude, no, no! Ow! <laughs> hey! Don't forget where we came from. We have been running our whole lives. I'm done running. And we'll kill anyone who gets in our way. No, not kill anyone. Kill a few people. Kill no people. Kill one guy, one stupid guy who no one loves. Now you're just making it sad. So Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3, uh, is a fairly recent film uh, from May 2023, May 5th, 2023 is when it came out. From a director, writer, James Gunn, who, you know, we've given all the Marvel, Disney, their day. It's Gunn's day now. I'm sorry, that wasn't what I meant to say. It came off a bit wrong, but I'm spelling it with two N's. Brian, you don't have a huge familiarity with James Gunn outside of the recent movies, right? Like the Suicide Squad and the Three Guardians films? Yeah, right. I... I was initially going to watch his uh the movies he had made pre Guardians I I didn't have time but um I have of course seen his masterpiece that he wrote Scooby Doo um as well as Dawn of the Dead um but yeah I mainly came to know him through the Guardians movies which is kind of really interesting but I'm assuming you are quite familiar with his work someone's forgetting future criterion release Scooby Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed <laughs> of course how could I forget I'm so sorry um, but yeah, I knew of James Gunn. I think um, the first one of his movies I had seen, I believe, would have actually been The Dawn of the Dead, if we're counting the writing credits. Yes, The Dawn of the Dead. Right. Which uh, I, was, I still think is the, the better Zack Snyder movie of the ones. That's my favorite. It um, is a great movie. And one of the better uh, sort of horror remakes out there. And then I found out about him weirdly through um, Lloyd Kaufman and Troma which is where he got his start yes. mm-hmm. um, doing a lot of like s- smaller trauma stuff. He wrote the movie Tromeo and Juliet. Yes. Which you're, I'm guessing you're aware of. Do you have any idea of the depravity in Tromeo and Juliet? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, so I've, I've been kind of picking at this Marvel book that I, I picked up. It's MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios, uh, written by Joanna Robinson, Dave Gonzalez, and Gavin Edwards, that basically covers like the entire history of these movies and goes into a bunch of stuff and it goes into a lot of some gun talk and it was it was going into his history with like trauma and it mentions Tromeo and Juliet but have have you seen Tromeo and Juliet? Oh, I've seen Tromeo and Juliet. More recently than that, I mean, I'm not a huge trauma-versed person, but I've right. seen a handful. And I'm like I get the vibe. Um, <laughs> right. It's deliberate vibe that I only tolerate under certain circumstances. Uh Tromeo mm-hmm. and Juliet is one. I think just because it's it's Romeo and Juliet, but they're they're all like addicted to sex. Sean Gunn plays a gangster who kind of dresses like a toddler, 
and then at one point he gets his head caved in by uh, being thrown out of a car onto a fire hydrant. Uh, there's very rough gore there. Um, so you can see at least the subversiveness uh, that he would tone down a bit. You know, sure. As, as he made uh, other movies. Though, to be fair, his directed movies, I have seen um, the, the earlier ones, which include Slither, which is a fun uh, solid horror comedy. Uh, starring Rooker, a rare Michael Rooker starring role. Um, Hell yes. Yes, uh, that movie I think is a lot of fun. I've seen before, and I recently watched Super, right before we started here. I think it's still a great movie, but that is definitely also the one where it's like, this is like two times the budget of a trauma movie, but not too far from a trauma movie at the same time. <laughs> um, it's a very interesting okay. film right. uh, that... It's going to be for everybody, but I'd be curious, especially to hear what you think. Um, and then the Guardians movies, which we'll get into here, but also even like the Suicide Squad, uh, which figures mm-hmm. into this movie's production very heavily. It does, um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, I've always been a fan of him, at least just being, however tasteless to any degree, a very interesting subversive director who clearly takes a lot of influence from genre filmmaking but also does have weirdly commercial instincts at heart as we get into uh, with these Guardians movies. And, I mean, do we, while we're talking about Gunn, do we just get into the production thing? Do we want to get that out of the way now? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So James Gunn obviously had directed uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volumes 1 and 2, uh, and he had had big success with them, very popular movies, uh, and... He had signed on shortly after doing Volume 2 to go ahead and sign for Volume 3. But in uh, July of 2018, Disney and Marvel decided to fire him from the production, mainly because um, a bunch of very conservative, shitty commenters like Mike Chernovich, 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 whatever, fuck that guy. Who Um, cares? (laughs) Yeah, right. Point is, he was just like circulating some old tweets that where James Gunn made some bad jokes i think we can all agree just bad jokes yeah and they're just like yeah they they're not like harmless but they're also not very harmful it's just kind of like why the fuck you do very this, dude? tasteless <laughs> just kind of juvenile yeah kind of edgy just to be just for just for the sake of being edgy it seems right which like there's a difference between doing that say in a trauma movie where i know you were skimpering around barely trying to make this in New York in Hell's Kitchen versus you tweeting something like, I don't know, while you were making super that was like an off-color joke. Uh, And, you know, he admitted as much. Um, I have at least a little bit of here what he said. Um, He said, um, making movies and telling jokes uh, that were outrageous and taboo was what he started his career with, but he's developed as a person. So uh, as my work and my humor develops. It's it's not to say that I'm better, but I'm very, very different than I was a few years ago. So, yeah, you know, reasonable response to that. Yeah. Yet, Alan Horn met with him and was like, no, I still don't want him here. I'm Alan Horn. And I know what he sounds like, because he's a very public figure who's not shadowy. <laughs> <laughs> so, that happened July 20th. And then on July 30th, the entire Guardians of the Galaxy cast had a huge open statement saying that, quote, we fully support James Gunn. We were all shocked by this abrupt firing last week and have intentionally waited these 10 days to respond in order to think, pray, listen, and discuss. 
So they weren't happy. I wonder who added the prey, by the way. I wonder, <laughs> yeah, I wonder who was who who on th- that cast. You think it was Vin? <laughs> <laughs> we gotta pray for this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, to be familiar. Um but yeah, so they were not happy. And then Gunn did get an exit settlement that wasn't disclosed somewhere around ten million dollars from rumored trades, so you know. He got that bag and then <laughs> got to eat his cake too, which is so funny. Yeah. yeah, so he exits, then he goes on to make the Suicide Squad while he's in production on that. At the same time, people in the backstage behind Alan Horn are like, guys, I don't know, maybe we should get him back. I don't know <laughs> yeah. if this is going to work out without him. I, I think we kind of have to have him back. And then he all goes off and makes the Suicide Squad, and then the pandemic happens, and he writes Peacemaker, <laughs> and then he yeah, makes right. that. And then finally they're like, okay, you go ahead and uh, finish the movie, right? And we're friends, right? We're still going to be friends? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I'll Anyways, go. I'm going to be the head of DC now. <laughs> well, no, wait. He, I think he, that didn't get announced until after he shot it, right? This was like right, late yeah. 2022. Yeah. So he's like, he shot the movie. It's like, they have to make it. And he's like, by the way, I'm with DC. This has been a whole thing in my contract. It wasn't in our exit clause that I signed fully. <laughs> uh, yeah. And yeah, and so, which I'm... We're not going to get too huge into it because nothing's happened yet. He's going to be making Superman Legacy, allegedly. Yeah. He's working on it right now as we speak. Hopefully. I mean, you know, because it's not like he almost got a thing canceled that he was involved in from David goddamn Zaslov a couple weeks ago because he co-wrote and produced that fucking uh, Coyote Acme movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that he didn't respond at all on social media until, like the day was announced that like, uh, just kidding. It can come out. They can sell it to other people. We're just kidding. He just posted like a wily coyote, like with a, a spigot fire with like a little weenie on it. Like being, <laughs> happy. that's funny. Yes. Uh, but yeah, so this whole thing was fucking ridiculous, right? You remember this. It, it is. It's a, like an insane thing. And like, obviously those, co- the, the jokes he made were horrible and anything, but like it, it is, the whole thing was stupid. And it is just insane to think that they were ever even considering moving forward without him because, like, these movies are him. Like, they are made by him, right? Like, they are kind of... There have been other instances, I think, of, like, directors kind of bucking a lot of the the more kind of trends of the MCU, right? Kind of going... Making kind of really original movies within this system. And he made three of them. It, It is such a weird thing to think about. And, like, I... I have other issues with with James Gunn. Um, I'm not sure if you know about the kind of writing incidents with the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie at all, but whole thing. Um, Nicole Perlman, right? That whole yes, thing? The, yes, the, the, whole, the whole Nicole Perlman thing. But, like, it is just kind of insane. The whole thing of him getting fired, rehired, and then working for the other team now. Well, having it, worked it, once for the other team. Which I love, right. too. Where, where it's just like that. That's literally, like, I think part of Disney's thing when they bring him back. Just like, well, you had your taste of other, like, fish in the sea. Yeah. But you can come back <laughs> home, right, baby? Yeah, I miss you. Come on. <laughs> and then he, but, but they're texting the other one. Just like, just give me, like, nine months. <laughs> I'll get out of here. Yeah. But, yeah, just a crazy set of circumstances where he gets to finish his trilogy 
and also gets to like make he makes the Suicide Squad, which I think is a a very good movie, a great modern comic book movie that like I would say a great one. As much as we talk about the fatigue of just this whole genre, I think that's one of the more interesting ones and really gets it like we'll talk about kind of what makes James Gunn so good at making these specific kinds of movies because they're kind of the Suicide Squad and Guardians share a lot of similarities but like hell Suicide Squad wants to share a lot of similarities Suicide Squad won <laughs> that's true yes so yeah. it was like literally like at least it was a made as a different movie and then they're like oh we gotta make this like Guardians of the Galaxy now <laughs> right yes exactly yeah but it is just so interesting that he now he's the head of DC, even though he got to finish his his trilogy, and it is like this fucking great movie that we're going to talk about. Yeah, for sure. But you know, let's I guess generally talk about at least the first two movies in a bit more detail. Right. Um, I mean, I'll just say for myself, uh, no spoilers. the The top three MCU movies for me are these three Guardians movies, just in like <laughs> varying orders. Like I I would say I'll just say it right now. I would say uh, the first one is my third. I think still a great movie, but is the one that feels the most like Marvel handled, mainly in terms of like mm-hmm. the grayness of it. That's the grayest one out of all of these. Yeah. It's I a very fun that. movie. I love it, but it's still just like that. That makes it just the default bottom. Um, then I would say three is my number two. And then I think number number one is truly volume two, which I think is just like an amazing fucking just weird science fiction movie. Because that's the thing is like these movies are MCU movies. The Guardians technically are superheroes within the galaxy. But like this is a fun sci-fi franchise, especially like coming out like right before Force Awakens comes out. Mm-hmm. That that I felt more attached to like a guardian just because it felt like such an interesting discovery given the comics were not very well known, which is the only reason why I could go over to Epcot and ride a guardians of the galaxy ride and then be like, Hey, where's like Captain America? Like shut up or islands of adventure. They're not here. (laughs) Um, but yeah, they, they were such interesting, obscure characters who really just immediately attached to audiences. Like, my mom has never seen any of these movies except the first Guardians. And she loved it. She thought it was like Hell fun yeah. and weird. And like that's the thing, yeah. it's like it's such a great blockbuster crowd pleaser movie. That's also fairly weird. But then volume two is like so weird. It's true. Yeah. An insane film that I can't believe yeah. cost like what two hundred million dollars they gave it to him to do that. <laughs> to kind of talk, I guess, briefly about like my history with these movies though. Yes. Like I remember seeing Guardians in 2014 and uh, I would have been 15 or 16 and, and just getting excited by just how great I, I still think like you're right I think that it is the the quote-unquote blandest of these movies but like visually. from a visual standpoint yeah. right yes yeah. visually but um I still just remember like uh, that fight sequence like with the ships above nowhere and just being like oh my god this is like incredible like sp- big scale sci-fi action and it was before force awakens had come out and my little 16 year old brain was just like oh, i i can't wait to see what star wars is gonna look like um but, and my but also, uh college self just like i can't wait to see force awakens everything <laughs> yes. yeah but also like it, it is so interesting to think of when the first guardians movie comes out and how it just 
again, the a lot of in this book, I did read a chapter on guardians. I'm kind of jumping around in, in the book, but like right. a lot of in that chapter, you get people being like, I don't know if this one's going to do well. Like, are people right. interested in a talking raccoon in a talking tree? And as a nerdy teenager who cared about like, you know, box office and like just all this stuff, I was kind of thinking like, yeah, is this going to do well? Do people care? But of course, like, of course this movie does well because it's so fun and the characters are so well-written and it is like one of the things that they talk about with kind of people looking back on the Guardians movie is like, this is just so unlike what had come before, right? Because like, even though a lot of these movies, especially like Thor or the Avengers have a lot of comedy to them and a lot of like levity, this really felt like the first one that was like, truly just a comedy yes and especially coming after like this comes out after thor the dark world a good movie by the way and captain america the winter soldier a bad movie by the way so i got some hot takes yeah (laughs) but like yeah those two movies which are so dark and serious and whatever and this movie comes out and is so fun and yeah, I mean, the cast is great, and like you said, Volume 2 is insane. I mean, so many of the decisions in that movie are wild, and again, at that time when it's made, is so weird, because it it's weird that they let him make that, because that really feels like when they're putting a tighter leash on like the creative decisions of the franchise, it feels like, right? That's where the kind of, a lot of it becomes homogenized, and like, I would argue, I mean, that's also the same year as uh, Ragnarok, which you can say a lot of things about Ragnarok, but it's also, it's distinctly of its director. That's true. I, yeah, I will say that. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I just, I just remember Volume 2 being so weird, and unlike any of the other Marvel movies around that time either, and I, I will say, I prefer Volume 3 to Volume 2, I think, that there's something about, I, I prefer a kind of... Uh, I think just the last hurrah of this movie is so like palpable. Um, and it really just like wins me over, over volume two, which is also great. And you know, I think another big thing that I like about this is something like speaking back to volume two, that Kurt Russell said when he watched the first guardians after he got offered volume two and he was just like, Oh man. So Pr- Pratt's doing what like I tried to do in the eighties. Right. And I think that's like the real key to it is like, it feels like it's truly like, if Kurt Russell had been Han Solo, which he auditioned for. Did he have really? Have you seen that footage? There's footage I've... of that. It's very interesting. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. Because he was like part of it, and that was the whole uh, audition process. It was like the cast of Carrie and Star Wars were like auditioning for the other movies. Oh, Back sure. to back, pretty much. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's right. interesting in that regard, too. Um But anyway, yeah. So it feels kind of like more like that. It feels like Gunn is inspired clearly by what Carpenter was doing to some degree and that like this this feels so indebted to like big trouble in little china which Absolutely. is like such a like movie where it's like i don't know we're gonna just treat this uh, we'll see this how this goes you know we're just gonna like very much feel this like kind of you know stream of consciousness thing i think even with the first guardians even though it's like very plotty in traditional marvel fashion there's still just like so many different distinct weird ideas to like go past what the audience would think Having a Jackson mm-hmm. Pollock joke yes. in yes. <laughs> fucking the first Guardians still is like amazing that he got that past them. And 
yeah, I just think it has that a bit more of an adult edge while at the same time having like an actual investment for like a kid. Because like, that's the thing also I didn't really mention about the MCU stuff on a personal note. Uh, my little nephew, who I've talked about before, the big reason we, you know, really bonded initially was he loved all the Marvel stuff. And I would explain to him like, well, that's Loki. He's Thor's brother, but he's a bad guy. And just like, he was like, wow, I'm amazed you know all of this. <laughs> just <laughs> gobsmacked. So um, and he loves Guardians of the Galaxy. I have seen many pieces of footage of him dancing along to Peter to come and get your love. Like during the opening. It's very sweet. Um, but yeah, at the same time, like that's, I can see why like, he would be invested. You would have been invested when you were like 16. I would have been invested when I was like in my <laughs> like 20s. It was like... Right. A fun fucking movie. Yeah. And like, I'm, I'm going to refer to this book again, but like in this book, like Malt, like Mark Ruffalo and like Robert Downey Jr. kind of both talk about that being the moment where really the MCU, the first Guardian movie, where really that becomes like the idea of a cinematic universe, something like bigger becomes like more attainable. And I think it is where these movies start to get for a while. Like they were really like, critic proof like any sort of they were just going to make a bajillion dollars every single weekend no matter what and like everyone was going to go see them everyone was going to talk about them and i think a lot of people talk about the guardians movie being the one that like proved like see we can do this we can do even the crazy stuff we can do and people will come out and see it and be interested in everything which is it's what makes these movies so great also interesting factoid is that uh, that one came out early August, which is usually like yeah. the sign of like, oh, this is the desperate blockbuster at the end of the season. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Doesn't know what they're going to do. And he, they just fucking ate up through like September of 2014. It was wild. Yeah. Yeah. Just how much creative freedom I think Gunn is given with these movies is so interesting and really kind of allows him to put a lot of like what you were talking about, just the, a lot of the character stuff in here is so weird and would feel so out of is feel so out of place in terms of the other marvel stuff yeah well we let's I mean, get talking more specifically about volume three now yes it's about yes, time please. we're out almost it an is. hour into this so let's let's talk about the movie um so volume three here obviously starts off where um following not just we should mention volume one and volume two but the holiday special which you've not seen out there is great yeah i, I was i was not able to see it but i, I I've, I've heard it's good it's and it's also very crucial because there's a I'll say this much, you know the line in here uh, from Mantis about being Peter Quill's sister. Yes. Right. That wasn't revealed in Volume Two to any degree. Right. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the holiday special, that's the crux of the special. Is like it's her talking to Drax about like, oh, I haven't told Peter yet, but he's my brother, just because he was right. my father. And all yeah. this, so it's just like, well, you got to get him a Christmas present. He loves Christmas. And so their idea of a Christmas present is to kidnap actor Kevin Bacon, who's his favorite. Of course. <laughs> from Footloose. Course. Uh, it's a very sweet, wonderful holiday special. That also is just like a great, it's a reason why like Mantis, who I liked in the second movie, I think is phenomenal in this movie. I think Absolutely. Palm Clementif is such like a fun character amongst obviously everyone else here who they're all living on nowhere now. They've taken it over as seen in the holiday special as well. Um, okay. And uh, they've you know made a little community and all that. But obviously, uh, there's somebody missing. You know, you ha- you, we have Drax. 
we have Nebula, we have Cosmo, uh, we have Kraglin, we have Rocket Raccoon, and, you know, we have Star-Lord is also there, but somebody's missing there, Brian, uh, as seen in two Avengers movies that most people saw, but, right, <laughs> right. but like at the same time, if you are just a Guardians person... I'm sure you're very thrown for a loop to realize that Gamora's not here because she died in Avengers Infinity War and came back in Avengers Endgame, but as an alternate universe version of herself from before the first Guardians <laughs> happened. So she's like, I don't know, Peter Quill. Oh, what, did we have some? It's like, you were my everything. Yes. And there's the, just that great scene later on where he kind of explains all of that, but like very quickly and with yes. the energy of like, uh, yeah, that's bull- that bullshit happened. Anyways, what, what are we doing here? Like, <laughs> it's great. And yeah, I mean, like, just that is such a, it's one of the kind of, uh, kind of cool things, but also kind of frustrating things about having a cinematic universe is like, you explaining that, uh, even though I've seen that movie, I'm thinking, God, that sounds so dumb. It's <laughs> so silly. Yeah, but especially, I don't know, particularly in, I think, Infinity War, where one of my big problems with it is I hate the way the Guardians are written, aside yeah. from, like, Rocket and Groot, who are, like, fine, there's subplot where it's like they're helping fucking Thor make a, an axe with Peter Dinklage, sure. Yeah. That's weird. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, but then, yeah, the fucking Star-Lord gets character assassination fully. Mm-hmm. I'm very yeah. firmly in that camp. Gamora gets literally thrown off a goddamn cliff because yeah. her daddy was, you know, the worst person in the world who committed horrible genocide. But he's just like, but, you know, it helped out, right? Great <laughs> motivation. I, I love that, right? I just I feel so invested in that character. He worked so much better as an unseen evil for most of, for volume two. It's He's fine whenever in volume one, just like, hey, I'm here. Yeah, I think we'll talk. We'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Yeah, just, I hate the way that they're written in Infinity War. And then Rocket is very well done, I think, in Endgame. I think he's, like, a solid addition to, like, the rest of that cast. And I think fits very well. And as performed by, you know, everyone loves talking about Bradley Cooper. We love Bradley. Great voice in this movie. In all these movies. Phenomenal. Unlikely voice. Because I remember around the time I was hoping for H. John Benjamin, like, before Guardians came out. That is a Which pretty good choice, actually. Would have been like it's been, I still think even if you did the same thing, I think H.M. Benjamin he would could, have handled it. <laughs> he could do it, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, but it is also another thing of like, I forget all the time that Bradley Cooper is in the MCU. Like all the time, I'm just like, oh yeah, Bradley Cooper is just is in the MCU. Um, but as you were saying, there, there's another performance here as Rocket. Yes, uh, Sean Gunn who obviously brother of James, but a very good actor. Like, he's he's not, like, it's not a nepotism thing. He's a very solid no. actor, especially in these movies. Uh, I've heard he's great on Gilmore Girls. I've never seen that. He's um, in, like, one episode of Gilmore Girls. Right. Um, he was not but, on it. But, yeah, but he is, at the same time, playing Craglin, who's a very interesting mm-hmm. side character who I never expected to feel invested in. I when love it, him in this movie. <laughs> in all, I think in Volume 2 and this... I love him dearly. And also the holiday special is very, like, he brings that same energy to it. Okay. And he's does such a great job with that, but also at the same time, he is doing a lot of the motion capture and on-set work with the actors as Rocket. 
Um, and also does the voice of the youngest Rocket who can talk. Oh, he's cool. talking like oh, this and whatnot. Adorable. Because admittedly, yes. like I love James. I listen to the commentary because I have the 4K Blu-ray. Um, and uh, James Gunn was talking about, which I would recommend. I love audio commentaries. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're dying. James Gunn is keeping the commentary alive. I love cool. his audio commentaries a lot. But uh, especially on this particular one, he talked about the fact that, like, Sean is, you know, like, so crucial to all the actors. Just need to be able to see something. Right. right? Mm-hmm. He just, like, they have to be able to have some kind of interaction. And you see on-set stuff of him acting with the actors. It's like, no, he's invested. Like, I saw footage of him with Linda Cardellini, who's in here, uh, yes. MCU wife. Uh, turns <laughs> Lila, uh, and uh, he's given his all on that motion capture stage, and you yeah. can see how much of that also influences Bradley Cooper's performance. Did you watch any of the like behind the scenes footage of of making this? Because I watched the um, I watched this on Disney Plus, and they have like the assembled like making of documentary thing. Did Did you watch that at all? There was a couple featurettes online that were like okay. ten nine minutes a gag reel. Oh no. Did the- and this is like an hour-long, like, documentary. Oh, right, the Disney Inside, on. right, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of footage of him in there, kind of on set, like, again, yeah, like you said, like, it's it's that thing that they, they talk about of, like, they need something to be there so that Rocket feels like a real character. But also, like, he's giving, like, a genuine performance as he's doing it on, like, on the set, right? Like, that's such an, it's an interesting thing where I am kind of imagining, like, oh, he's just kind of like there but the, he is giving like a genuine performance like he does all the emotional beats and it is a really great physical performance just for the way that he like folds his knees <laughs> when he's like doing the motion capture it looks very uncomfortable especially and that man is like near 50 at this point right. he's doing this shit yeah right but no you're right like yeah it feels so crazy and it is even crazier to think like like we kind of mentioned earlier, like it's weird to think that when the first movie was coming out, they had this idea of like, will people care about a talking raccoon and a talking tree? And here we are in volume three where Rocket is this like a full character. You you could not really tell a difference between him or like Pratt or Batista, right? He feels like a real character who's just in this world. Um, and yeah, got, Sean Gunn is, is just giving a great physical performance as him. Well, yeah, and, I mean, Rocket is the, the key to all of this um, particular exactly. entry, uh, because this is obviously the one that decided on the very, I think, truly the bravest choice I could imagine any $250 million blockbuster could make, of, like, uh, the Rocket character, who everybody loves, he's just, like, kind of like, oh, he's a scoundrel, but he's cute, because he's a raccoon gang. But he says he's not a raccoon. Um, right, he's not a raccoon, uh, which was a fun joke that you realize has traumatic backstory. Yes. In Godfather 2 level fashion, because it cuts between <laughs> Rocket in the present having been horribly, uh, you know, put into a, a beaten to near. What exactly? He's in like a coma, kind of. Right. I would he's say, beaten right? into a coma when Adam Warlock shows up. Uh, exactly. Right. Will Poulter. Uh, having fun, though I will say maybe my, we'll get to it. Like probably my least favorite thing about the movie, even though he's solid, it does. I just, dis- I disagree. Oh. I, I mean, okay. I, I can see what I can see. Uh, we'll get what to you it. by that though. But like, we'll get to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But um, after that happens, you know, Rocket is in, near a coma because the med pack that they tried to use to heal right, him so from they... his wounds, like, caused him to have a horrible seizure. So, you know, I've, I've definitely told the guardians of my nephew to not watch uh, <laughs> this particular movie with him. I don't think a seven-year-old could handle this to any degree. No, yeah. I mean, like... It's it, rough. <laughs> it is. A lot of this movie, right? Like, as as much as, like, there has been kind of a recent discussion, I think, around, like... I remember around, like, Black Widow, people were like, is this the most violent Marvel movie? <laughs> and then you watch it, and it's, like, a broken arm for, like, a frame and whatever. And it's such a well-staged frame, though. Yeah, great. Great <laughs> shot movie. Um... <laughs> But like, yeah, I, really. While while rewatching this, I was kind of fearful of of those flashbacks, right? Because yeah. I was because you know them already. Like rewatching it, are they are they gonna feel a bit like okay, let's move on? We kind of get this, but no, they feel so human and so beautiful and so human in like their characters. I guess um, <laughs> they, they are they are animals who have wheels and. <laughs> You know, right? These characters who we're referencing here, because like in in these flashbacks, we uh, have the uh, high evolutionary, our villain, played by Chuck Woody Iwoli. I think I'm right. Oh yeah, better than I would have done. Maybe <laughs> uh, I I will refer to James Gunn calls him Chuck. I'll call him Chuck. Cool. Uh, on the commentary, so I'm stealing <laughs> that from him. Um, but he's great, um, especially he was uh, also in Peacemaker, which I don't... Have you seen Peacemaker? I have. Oh my gosh, he was in Peacemaker. Right, he was the lead of the, like, the task force. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's really fun in that. Really, yes. like, really fun, like, miniseries thing. I, well, it's supposed to have a second season. I don't know, though. It is, but I don't know how... Who knows what the fuck is happening out? Because there's also an Amanda Waller Warner show Brothers. happening or something. That's yeah, maybe. I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> I don't think Viola Davis signed the contract for that yet. Um, but uh, this fascinating character who is responsible for like this horrible thing that happens, which I love that they, they obviously in the MCU there's been a kind of trend. We'll call it uh, Killmonger wannabeitis. Uh, where a lot of characters who want to be like, oh, I have a tragic backstory, so you can make sense of my evil. And they reference it like, this is fucking dumb. But at the same time, this what I love about him as a villain is he feels truly like just this awful, horrible being who is very well-written and very fascinating as a character and what he's like trying to do, trying to create world in his own image, which initially included Rocket, and he's like, ah, oh, this fucking bullshit didn't work. Except, wait, he can... He knows things I'm not aware of, how to make animal-human hybrid things? The, the best, the greatest part of this movie, one of my, maybe my favorite part of this movie, is him going, I made you. How did you know? Yes. It's incredible. I, I mean, for one, I love a good. Um, I don't know what to call, it, but a god character, right? Sort of a a Promethean kind of character who, you know, I, I don't know. There's something about that sort of idea that I find so interesting, and I just again find it. Yeah, it's such an interesting character of like he is is a god basically. He creates all of these experiments and all these races and everything, and like. It is, 
he's such a great villain. Um, because like, yeah, he, you, you, you understand kind of what he's doing, but he, I, I do kind of love that moment when, yeah, Peter's like, I don't care. I don't want to hear your fucking sob story. Like yeah. whatever it, it's, yeah, it's great. And it feels like a moment of like, because this movie has this kind of propulsive kind of energy, because the whole plot of the movie is we need to save rocket that by the time you get to that moment, it doesn't even feel like necessarily that thing we were talking about of like undercutting the tension. It more feels like, Oh, like he is very angry and like wants to save his friend. There's a, a genuine desperation there that I really love. Yeah, I think that's what really pulls the best out of all these characters to some degree. Just because, obviously, mm-hmm. with the other Guardians movies, the, the first one develops in a very more traditional, like, origin story point, getting all these right. characters together. Then, volume two is just like, hey, let's have him hang out on a weird planet, man. That's yes. his dad? <laughs> <laughs> the planet is his dad, yes. This <laughs> <laughs> is dad. God, uh, should have been the, the subtitle Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. The planet is his dad. <laughs> uh, but having like that kind of like hangout movie, and then like you mentioned, this movie having like we have so little time to make this work. We are on a yeah. desperate point because Rocket could die at any moment. And at the same time, keeping those stakes in mind, they also don't forget to be these characters, which is to say, kind of like fuck ups. That's yeah. like the charm is yeah. that they're all fuck ups who fucked up in various different ways and on the mission do as well. Well, at the same time, like, having room for, like, the weird aesthetics, like, your our backgrounds both are reflective of, <laughs> like, w- probably my favorite sequence on, like, a sci-fi level with this movie of just, like, they're going in their spacesuits that look like 2001, but it's the whole rainbow collection. Yeah. And onto a flesh plant <laughs> that is, like, the headquarters of a corporation. The high evolutionary has just as, like, the thing to fund his fucked up research. Right. This is, yeah. like, his Elon Musk, like... <laughs> SpaceX. And the way that James Gunn described, like, the look of it is it looks like you're inside a colonoscopy. Yes. <laughs> if you're walking through it. <laughs> it yeah. Well, also, shout out with sets that look a lot like the original Supergirl movie from 1984. Oh, like, There's okay. an identical... That's, like, the location where Peter O'Toole and initially Supergirl are. And she has to leave, like, go to Earth and find the crystal or whatever the bullshit it is. But it looks like that lobby. They're like home base. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, I, while we're talking about the sets, I will say, like, I, watching that behind-the-scenes thing, the sets of this movie are incredible. And, like, yes. because they built a, a like, the, the Nowhere set is a, like, huge set. It's, like, four stories tall? Yeah, like, three three or four stories tall, and, like, all the rooms are modeled, like, you can go in, like, he, like James, you watch James Gunn, like, map out the Adam Warlock opening sequence. And it, it is incredible. And, it, again, like, this thing we're talking about of, like, the way they're shooting Avengers Endgame, where it's, like, a fucking warehouse in Atlanta. And, like, none of the characters are in the same room. It's all, like, blue screen or whatever. Like, there's such a tactility to this movie still. Where very little of this has the kind of sludgy look that we talk about. Like a lot of it is because of just how ambitious this thing is. Like it, it, as much as we talked about, like how much like these characters are on a mission in this movie, it's a two and a half hour movie. There is like a, a massive scale of this movie 
and but I just love like just all of the sets look so incredible, and it, it's just that yeah, just that tactility that I I love and I miss from these movies. That's also is a lot to say of like not just the uh, practical sets which are amazing, and Disney. I would love to go to some place that has a Guardians of the Galaxy land. Yeah, in the they have they have the fucking Tower of Terror thing. I forgot what the Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, which oh, right. is like the ride that's over in Disneyland. Right. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Is it like those aesthetics? I think are a lot because of those sets, but also just the practical nature of like the costumes. Like I love your background is of Nathan Fillion and his crew in yeah, these the, fucking uh, like flesh giant suits that look like. <laughs> yeah. What do they? Please help me describe what these look because I had thought they look like. They're called the Orgo Sentries, by the way, yes. which is a fucking cool name. But they look like <laughs> they're like clayface, but like but like fleshy. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me a lot of the Butterball Cenobite from the Hellraiser series, who okay. has a very similar shape. But it's like if you pulled off his clothing, this is what he would look like underneath. These organic, literally organic-looking costumes. They're so odd and off but also the makeup in this movie the big thing about this movie is it broke the record for the most practical makeup effects that was for previous record holder was the jim carrey grinch yes because because all everyone in that movie is a is a is a whovian is that the term whovian i'm sorry to the citizens of whoville (laughs) cindy we apologize deeply that movie also that was nominated and won a best makeup award fairly I also think this one might deserve it. I absolutely. What is the makeup competition for this year? Well, I think Bo is afraid is one for me. I think Bo is afraid is some of the Bo best. Bo is afraid makeup. is one. I would say um, people, someone. Someone. Uh, a lot of people have been talking about this on on Twitter recently. But the the makeup in Oppenheimer is great. True. Like it's great old man makeup and like kind of de aging. Some some, the, some of the best, considering that's usually terrible. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Asteroid City, but I feel like that's just, I mean, that's Wes. Like, Priscilla, you know, probably. Priscilla, of course, Barbie, yeah. right? But like, right. I mean, it is just like, it reminds me, and this is whole, this whole franchise kind of has that Star Wars kind of energy right. to it, of course, which Gunn is clearly like inspired by. But like, this movie feels like it has a lot of that in like just the background characters. And just like, you'll notice someone in the background be like, that guy looks fucking cool. And you'll just like rewind just to look at like a guy in the background. And there's so much of that in this movie. The whole planet that's made of fucking animal hybrids. Yes, yes, yes. It's so good. Just such weird to say makeups. There's a parrot lady. There's some rabbit the parrot people. Lady. The, ba- the vampire bats yeah. who are like mm-hmm. are the people who give us the exposition of where <laughs> we need to go. <laughs> but in this language that James Gunn wrote at least 150 words for. For this right. movie. Mm-hmm. Apparently. Not a huge language, but that's... That's conversational. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Doing like absolutely. A big thing, the word jube-jube, which becomes crucial to our climax, is friend, but if you say jube, you're just like, we're friends. But jube-jube is like, we are best friends. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned so much about a language that I can't use, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's so funny. Um... But, but yeah, I think that tactility, like you were mentioning, really benefits this in a way that, like, you mentioned Star Wars. Mm-hmm. 
I I am someone who thinks the sequel trilogy almost has a similar track record. We won't go into this too much because there's a whole Star Wars season that looms over the horizon like oh yeah, star at some <laughs> point. I had a similar track record that I really liked Force Awakens and especially Last Jedi, and this is easily like everything I would have hoped and dreamed Rise of Skywalker never could ever be. <laughs> right. I I mean like the really great thing about this movie is that like and the, these three movies is that all three of them are so different from each other in like their locations in what they are showing you in their aesthetics in like their like you know i mean they're all colorful movies but like this movie has so many weird stuff that like we've talked about like the flesh planet and the uh, hume animals is what they're called uh the counter earth planet but just like that variety right like the variety of like locations and all of that stuff yeah, that's kind of, like, the thing that you want from Star Wars. You want to see, like, weird planets and weird creatures and aliens that you've never seen. And, yeah, these movies, like, are really interesting in that sense. Yeah, and, you know, I think we gotta pay some respect to somebody. Very crucial. Okay. Mr. Dave Batista, we have not talked about nearly that much. And one of my One of my childhood heroes. I was a huge wrestling fan as as a kid. Oh, right. Yes. Very big into WWE and WWF. Um, and I loved watching Dave Bautista. He was one of my favorite wrestlers as a kid. I, I just loved him. And getting to see him like transition into like movies and in all these movies, he's really great. But, but really getting to see him become like a real actor, you know, so to speak, where he is like in a lot of in more dramatic roles other than this it is great I, I just i love it the big thing going into guardians of the galaxy i remember is a lot of people along with what you were talking about like is this gonna hit and like batista being like oh okay i mean sure the guy he was like right. in the man with the iron fists previously and stuff like that he was the true surprise to everyone just like this yeah. is such a wonderful comedic performance has played so straight <laughs> Great makeup on his character. So memorable. Mm-hmm. He just looks like this big, like, grayscale man who just has a hearty laugh. And all this other stuff is very charming. Just the brief bit after they get through this ship, uh, the meat flesh ship, and uh, they're all inside. And Mantis, by the way, lands, like, on her neck, which is, like, yes. a great stunt. I'm just like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's brutal. Uh, but uh, then, you know, Nathan Fillion comes in and all this other stuff. But then... The bit where Drax is off to the side while everyone else is just talking about, like, oh, we're all, like, angry and someone's talking to Mantis. It's like, are we angry? Mantis, you asshole! (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's my favorite, I would say. Do you have a favorite Batista bit? Oh, my God. There's so many. It's it's when they're planning to, when they're first planning to rescue Rocket and they're like, we'll kill everyone. And it's like, no, we're not going to kill anyone. Kill one stupid guy that no one likes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's great I, yeah and like what is so great about his performance is like he's the straight man basically right and he talked a little bit about like it, you know having to kind of play straight and play it very sincere it is very difficult to do that and he really nails a lot of those like moments where you just he has to play it straight but it's so funny I mean, we should we we should talk a little bit more about I guess some of the some of the cast, right? Because we've talked we right. talked about uh, Batista, talked about Cooper. I mean, Pratt is so interesting to me. 
Yes. Because I I don't like him. <laughs> not really. Not really. And like I, I think I, I I don't know. I think he is just one of those actors where his his shtick just really really grates on me. Like I just I, I can't stand it. And yet I think he's giving a genuinely great performance in this movie. And is just maybe the best performance he's given on in a movie yet. You don't feel about him in the Guardians movies in general that way, right? Well, no, no. That no. that that is kind of the thing about him is like I I very much don't like him as an actor outside of these movies. I don't like him as Mario. I don't want to fucking see him as Garfield. Um <laughs> I liked him as Emmett, the the Lego movie guy. Yeah, that yeah, that that and, was and, good, and I also have also I don't know, you have you seen Parks and Rec? I've seen a few episodes here and there of like dabbled but not not like all the way through i also had that where i obviously i followed him from there i was just like oh my god parks and rick this is one of my favorite sitcoms i love watching all the time and he's fun on that show as andy and then of course he got buffed up for the first guardians yeah and voiceover like i said in the first lego movie and then in the guardians movies and then yeah (laughs) not a lot after that (laughs) No, he'll pop, he, he. I mean, he like the movies he is in, right? Like, like the Jurassic World movies, or like, yeah. you know, the Tomorrow War, which is actually not a bad Didn't movie, see that. but like, it, it eh, it's okay. It's, <laughs> okay. it's a good video game movie Rousing. that is not based off a video game. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Um, I, I just find him so uninteresting on like on screen and as a as a lead, especially like I think he's just not interesting, but. He is really great in this movie. And like I talked I mentioned this earlier, but like the scene where they're in the elevator and he's kind of like giving you the the in case you missed it for like Infinity War and Endgame. And yes. it's just the way he delivers it where I'm just like he's 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 giving the energy that like he has on Parks and Rec from what I've seen of him of of like that feels just like a sitcom bit. And and it's some of the stuff that he does really great as Star Lord. And this is the only one, I think, well, volume two, I think, as well. But, like, at the end, when he gives that, like, scream when, like, he thinks Rocket is dying, it's so emotionally yeah. compelling to me. And I, I've just never thought that about him in any other movie. <laughs> also, I think he does a great job with another kind of interesting thing about this movie. The first fuck dropped in MCU film. A great bit. Um, Yes, and the thing is, like, there's a way, like, you could do that, and then you do the worst thing possible, just having Guardian, act, like, Rocket say, like, we're the Guardians of the fucking galaxy. Sure. Which would be terrible, mm-hmm. versus having it just be a simple, like, character-based bit of him looking over at Karen Gill and his nebula, just saying, like, push the thing down, push the fucking thing, and then lift him. <laughs> it's just so casual. It was improvised by him. Yeah. It, it, yeah, which is is great, like... I just love that moment, too, because, like, it's Karen Gillan, like, holding down the button, and then she, like, stops for a second and goes, <sighs> okay, now what? <laughs> and then he gives that great line. Yeah, it, it's it, it's great to have that in such a, like, small character moment where, like, it, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't feel like the big, like, oh, my God, they said fuck, where it just feels like this really great moment between these characters that, like, there are so much of these throughout this movie and they all just kind of build and like accumulate to create these great characters that we also like know so well. And that's why we like, why they're so compelling to uh, on screen. Yeah. In case you couldn't tell, I think we both kind of like this movie, but 
It's pretty David. good. And I haven't even, we haven't even talked about the Radiohead needle drop because... <laughs> Well, we haven't talked about the soundtrack in general, which is a big part of these movies, of course. That's true. But start. Yeah. we kick off with Radiohead's Creep. Now, now, let me set the stage for you, Thomas. <laughs> there I am. A jaded MCU viewer. In the far-off distant past of May 2023. <laughs> yes. That long time ago when I was so young. Um, I'm interested in this because it is a, a, a Guardians movie. They're the mm-hmm. two other movies I really just like actually really like of of this franchise and just you know there's just when i think i'm out they they pull me back in because it starts with a the acoustic version of creep and i i love when movies play radiohead because they're my favorite band but like creep can often feel like such a like cop out of like yeah okay it's you know it's like playing like smells like teen spirit right like oh is that a very popular song especially with with white people, yes, in particular. and in movies, we um, firmly recommend uh, the Patrice O'Neill bit that he did on a radio show about Creep. Just okay. as like a white person's favorite song, uh, one of the best yeah. comedy bits I've ever seen <laughs> in any film. But but like, uh, yes, uh, Creep. Well, of course, Creep comes well, was, in. It creeps it, up on you. It does creep up on you. It was very. I, I was like, I recognize these chords, and then you hear Tom York, and it. it yeah, and like. Again, yeah, it feels so. It can feel so cheap if you just play "Creep" as like the Radiohead song, and yet it genuinely feels great because of like it. It it kind of encapsulates the mental state of like where these characters are. Of like they are all outside. They're all creeps, right? Like you know what they're all weirdos. What the hell are they doing here? They don't. Yeah, I don't belong here. here. All this stuff, right? It's it's great. I love that it is the acoustic version of it because it just it starts you off with this sense of like finality of like oh this is the last movie and i also just love like we see a lot like becoming more and more of a trend of like modern hollywood movies will play like very popular songs and kind of just for no reason other than just the nostalgia purpose of it of like hey you know this song let's play it in a movie for five seconds but i just love the way that this movie and there's a like with the the Beastie Boys one later on, like the way that this movie is like, we're not going to just play these songs for five seconds as like a novelty. We're going to play the whole song and we're going to set this sequence, right? The opening credits, that whole hallway sequence to this song. And I, I just love that. I love that. And it's, even though it is my favorite band and it starts this movie off on a, on a very high note. <laughs> Would you say that's your favorite needle drop? Cause I think it's a very, like, obviously the soundtracks in these movies, like the first guardians has a lot of really solid songs. Some of obscure ones in terms of like that seventies era pop. And then, uh, you know, volume two has like weird ones. Then you have this movie, which it has, has like some familiar songs reasons by earth, wind and fire is such a weird fucking choice. Yeah. But it's so rules for that whole sequence. And it's like, it's also it's scored to it, but in this way that feels like playful, but then it gets terrifying for a second because Drax nearly dies. And then it's like, all right, we're back on. <laughs> let's, let's put it back up. We're good. As much as like, I think the whole soundtracks thing like became uh, the big obsession with these movies, like they're great choices and like they're really great song choices they don't feel like an uh, an executive being like you know we need to put this in there because the kids will recognize this song or whatever right like they play the fucking flaming lips 
Like, what a weird yeah. choice in a blockbuster. And, like, I keep thinking of, like, the Mario movie, and it really bothered oh, me in that Lord. movie how they yeah. play, like, <laughs> yeah, just, like, you know, take on me, right? Like, you know, it, it's... And these movies don't do that, which is just so... It's just so refreshing. I, I love that. Well, especially with, particularly in this movie, the big innovation is now that he has the zoom that he got from the end of volume <laughs> two, uh, it has a larger selection that has, you know, a wider variety. Um, that's not my favorite needle drop, though. It's hard to, like, okay. for some to pick. I have one. It's the ending of the movie. I don't know if we want to talk about that near the end. <laughs> oh, that. man. I mean, we can get into it now, honestly, I would say. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, to have an MCU movie end with, like, this whole, like, basically like a dance sequence almost (laughs) it's a dreamworks dance party ending yeah it's great and i i I love just seeing all the characters give this sort of like this like scream of like almost joy or like relief like all the characters do that do that at the end and it, it just it is this sort of like really comforting just i don't know there's something so cozy about like that ending, I, I I love it. Yeah, I mean, I want to. I can't get to the ending right now, Brian. Okay. There's still so much we haven't talked about in this movie. There is. I mean, uh... we gotta go a bit more rapid fire. We've been we, to be fair, we talked for an hour before we talked about the movie itself. This is true. This is true. But um, but um, you know what? Uh, a bit more about Mantis. I think in this particular movie, mm-hmm. I think because like. I thought she was a pretty solid introduction in two, and then all the stuff in the holiday special happens. But then in three, I really like the fact that she does feel a part of the team, but you can see why she would want to potentially drift off at the end, like have some time to herself uh, right. along with Peter Quill. That's the thing, like all the the beauty of that ending is like how well these arcs are set up. Because it's like this one truly, I think, is maybe the one that made me the most emotional out of any of the Guardians movies. Oh, My yeah. favorite emotional beat and any of them is the ending of Volume 2. I'm like a mess at the end of Volume 2. I think it's yeah. such a beautiful, the Cat Stevens song, just wonderful. But this one has so many tearjerker moments throughout. Just like all the stuff with Rocket and his buddies, who, you know, we talked about briefly. Uh, and we didn't talk about because, you know, they lived after that. And they had a very full lives. Um, <laughs> it's, it's such an upsetting, brutal bit that is, like I said, the main reason why I'm not recommending my nephew see that this particular fucking movie it's, it's and but at the same time upsetting yeah yeah it's truly yeah to the degree i saw it in dolby and i did see a kid run out i mean i i kind of yeah. get it yeah yeah uh but at the same time it feels not at all exploitative and it feels truly like he has empathy for yeah. these characters they do have a lot of like just tragic beauty to them that's mm-hmm. like also it's it's something that feels like it's, you know, it's Island of Dr. Moreau. It's classic, like, sort of horror science fiction. Particular genre influence coming out in this way that keeps you, like, so invested. Despite, like, if you told me on paper, so, like, hey, there are these test subjects that are, like, they can all talk. And also, uh, they have robot parts. I'm like, cyborg pets? Sign me up. But it's like, oh, no. It's so horrible to see their existence. But they're, they're trying to keep things light. They're having yeah. fun as much as they can. Uh, yeah. And then and then that fucking bit happens, and it's soul-crushing. <laughs> it is, yeah. And like like I was mentioning earlier, like I, I was kind of fearful of, of re-watching these again, because like, 
but they don't feel they don't linger too much and they they're doled out at like at the perfect time because like when you get to one you're always just like oh my gosh yes we get to get experience this flashback and when it once it's over and you're getting over the horrible thing that you've seen probably like you're back to the action with the guardians and it, it all it it handles it goes back and forth between those two like timelines so well like just the pacing of this movie is great and like even though it's two and a half hours and it's like a very big massive movie it it moves along at a very good pace i think because obviously if you told me on paper like that's half the movie i'm like oh man this is gonna be a nightmare right tonal like shifts but at the same time guardians exists so well because of its tonal shifts throughout all the movies Mm and like very interesting fascinating like drifts not also in like genre like horror bits pop up here um throughout with with stuff like this and it just feels like gun has such a control over like who his characters are that he can put them in any scenario you know these guys are so putting them in this like weird almost different genre setup still works even like this version of gamora as well which i think is like a big thing is like he obviously got dealt that hand that we were talking about earlier uh from the end game movie and it's like okay what do i do with this version of the character and she is like so wonderfully portrayed as like hey look i'm like a space pirate dude (laughs) yes that's what i want to do and like i'm i'm not that girl you're talking about and that that whole dynamic works so wonderfully to like as you see her grow to like respect peter but not necessarily be like i'm not gonna like be in a relationship with you but like I can see why other me likes you. The scene at the at the flesh place when like all hell's broken loose and everything and like he sort of tells her like you know don't worry I'll get I'll get the information from her like I know how to work her or whatever and, and you know the way that you know you think it doesn't pay off but then eventually it does like he's like they they'll understand if I talk from my heart and then he's like yeah I'm not doing that I'm just I just wanted the information like you, you yeah it is like that character gets to naturally see him kind of be charming and be really like yeah you understand why that that gamora like fell in love with him and it's 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 kind of great to see like i love that just saldana's like reaction is really great of like she's just like god damn it he fucking got me like he, I, he's so good he's, yeah it's great yeah one of the most beautiful little bits of just the two of them saying goodbye to each other. And Gamora's about yeah. to leave, and then just is like, it would have been fun. Just like, oh, God. Yeah. So good. But then she also gets her happy ending with Sylvester Stallone, who's also <laughs> in this movie as well. After he gets the two. and. He gets the and. He gets the and. He earned the and. He's very fun when he, he pops is. up in this. <laughs> Particularly great. as, like, the proud papa just, like, coming for a hug. It's just like, it's so great. And the, at the end, when, like, they're all like supporting Gamora, and he's like, "This is what you gotta be like, guys. Like, come on, this is it." Like, <laughs> yes. Um, you know what? I want to go ahead and uh, jump into like a couple other the bigger cast members we haven't talked about real quick. Karen Gillan, who is such an interesting part of these movies, where like she was basically like a pretty fun henchwoman in the first Guardians, and then she becomes a vital emotional tether to the entire thing in Volume Two. And then Volume 3, it's like such an interesting character where she still is herself, but she actually has to confront something about herself, which I think all of the characters to some degree kind of like get these like great rewarding things where it's like her 
learn to be more empathetic. Like the bit where Rocket comes back out of his coma, they get the med pack and everything, and they are able to like get the bypass and all this other shit, and Rocket is awoken, and over the intercom, Nebula is just like tearing up. And just like so emotionally invested. And like all that stuff in the like with the kids, that whole thing I just think is like so well done. Yeah. And I mean like uh, Yeah, it's so interesting to think that she is kind of one of the most interesting characters in this movie to me. Like I, I love her performance yeah. as Nebula. Um and like The makeup's killer as is. well. I always love her. Like her makeup is so yeah, sick. Absolutely. And like Right, I mean, like, she is the henchman in, like, the first one, and you kind of don't think much about her yeah. other than, like, she looks cool. But, like, she is genuinely an emotional core of this movie, and it, it is very interesting, I think, the way that, like, her character is kind of, yeah, confronted in this way, and, like, but also, I, some of the funnier stuff that she does is so great. I love the scene where, like, it's one of the scenes where Peter is like telling Gamora, like you know, he's kind of like, oh, like we had something once, whatever. Oh, yeah, while they're on the flesh planet and trying to get the file. And yes, everything. and it's Gamora saying like, that doesn't sound like me. It sounds more like her. And then they have like this moment of like, oh, I don't know. I mean, maybe. <laughs> well, no, they laugh in this show. They both laugh, just like oh, I can't believe yeah. it. And then he looks over. It's like, don't look at me like a lost puppy. One lie down. His great line where he's like, I just never noticed how black your eyes were. <laughs> Which is so great. Which, that's a, that feels like that's an example of a joke where, like, obviously he's being insensitive because she later talks about just, like, my eyes were replaced <laughs> by my by evil... My father as a form of torture. <laughs> he's like, he picked a good set. <laughs> <laughs> that feels more like Peter Quill being in, insensitive in the way that I prefer because he's trying to be complimentary. Right. <laughs> but in, like, the worst possible way. And... <laughs> It's just like, that's why the joke works a lot better than so many of the fucking jokes. I can't get into it. Infinity War, in particular, just all just, the joke bits with them one, are terrible. Just pick one. <laughs> you know, if I had to pick one, it's actually Drax thinking that he's invisible. That's like the worst. That's really like the worst attempt at like, this is just dumb. Yeah. And not fun. Well, it's like funny at first, and then it it kind of drags on for a while, from what I remember. As opposed to in this movie, there are fun gags that drag on just enough, like the Zargnut thing, which is hilarious. Yeah. We're just like, oh, do you want a Zargnut? No. And then later on with Mantis, just like, oh, I could use a Zargnut. They're all gone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's like two. That's enough. Feeds two of them. <laughs> yeah. And they, like, again, like all of these moments, like there's so many of these little character moments of just like them being like just so annoying to each other and like so just like, <laughs> you know, yeah, but like they all add up. And it's one of the reasons that you just like become so emotionally invested in these characters. And like, I think what's great about this movie in particular is that like Gunn has already done all all of this character development over these last two movies yes. and you've gotten so much and you know even you got to see them in movies that James Gunn didn't make so like you kind of still got to see them and be with them but like it's be yeah like I loved feeling embarrassed with them about being in Thor Love and Thunder oh, yeah oh boy that's literally what every person in Thor Love and Thunder from the Guardians cast looks literally just like oh god I don't want to be yeah. here. See, even Rocket, who had to be animated that way. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, but, but we're able to have all this yeah. kind of this payoff, this emotional payoff with all these characters like Nebula and like Rocket. Like Groot, who we haven't talked about at all. Groot. Groot. I mean... He is Groot. He is Groot. I... Do you have a favorite like era of Groot? Like, do you, do you prefer like normal Groot, baby Groot? I don't know. I think I just like Groot in general. I, I like all vibes of Groot. The original character R.I.P. Uh, oh. <laughs> which we should note. That's like, James Gunn always insists on this, and I do agree with him. Like, it does feel like over the arc of these movies, that guy was a full-grown man who was completely different than, like, the baby that we get who turns into a teenager and then turns into, now this, like, adorable, like, jock college kid. (laughs) Which I think just, like, I, I love, I really love this mode for him, too, where it's just, like, especially in the holiday special, there's a great bit where he's, like, jamming out to the song. That plays at the opening. And he's just like a fucking drunken frat boy saying, I am Groot. And so good. Um, but he's very sweet and sincere in this. Like, I love so much. Um, one, in terms of just like a sci-fi level, um, the bit where he turns into the octopus Groot and just has like all the guns come out. Oh my gosh. Um, yes. Rules. That's great. But also even Kaiju Groot, which is a funny gag. <laughs> Both times it happens. <laughs> And Peter Quill um, going, no, especially not the bit kaiju, where he like please, has his no. t- <laughs> full kaiju, and then he, like his tongue is like waggling, and you can um, hear Vin Diesel just going like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Vin, truly, especially after look as much as we haven't talked about Fast X in any capacity, oh. I don't think. Um, after such disappointment for Vin, uh, well, it was funny, that was a disappointment because it came out like right after, right? Yeah, that's the whole thing because it's like it's like that was Memorial Day. This was like. Cinco de Mayo, right? <laughs> yeah, it was just like I, I'm so impressed with like the few bits obviously he does here, particularly like the I love you guys at the very end. Yeah. That's tremendous. That's a wonderful little bit. And I love how it works. It's just like, oh no, James Gunn talked about this, and I agree with this theory. It feels like Groot has to like bond with you in order for him to understand you. Yes. Right. That's why Gamora here doesn't understand. Because just like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> it's a great kind of throwback to like the original where it's like she has that kind of like, oh, he only says I am Groot, right? And I, I love that it is like, you're still doing that joke of like he, like, what is he, what? he That's a language? Like what? But it, again, it feels right because it's a character who doesn't know who that is. And I just, I love when she's like, you guys are just making things up that he's saying, right? <laughs> <laughs> that one or i love like i think it's towards the end uh one of the set pieces when he like crash lands the ship and he's his i am group he's saying like did that look cool <laughs> just just yeah going into that whole like him being like this frat guy like you know whatever he is at this point it's great um but but also a very lovely moment between the two of them near the end of the movie where like they're on that little balcony in nowhere and he just kind of like looks almost bashfully and he's just like, it was nice working with you or whatever. And they like shake hands. It's so sweet. Cause like, that's like his aunt from like the other movies right. who died horribly. And now like she's here, but she's like leaving, but it's like, I get it. But I don't know. I miss you. It's so yeah. cute. They feel like a true found family. And that's what I love about these movies so much. When we get to like this, this fucking tremendous ending. Where we have all of these different characters just colliding 
and it working so well, even like as much as like, I kind of referenced Adam Warlock mm-hmm. earlier, and we kind of have disagreement, right? <laughs> like you really like him. I lo- really like him too. I love Will Poulter. I think he's funny. Yeah. Especially when he gets like that thing thrown at him at the beginning and it's like, who threw that? <laughs> Baby. Funny. <laughs> yeah, he's really great. Um, I don't yes. know. No, I, I just, I like him. I, I think he is a bit underused in the movie. And I think it. this feels like the movie is like, it's very stuffed with characters and with like stuff. Yes. And it, and he, he does feel kind of like a, a bit too much. Right. But like, I love having him and Elizabeth Debicki. I will yeah. say, like, just the scene where the high evolutionary gets, like, a step stool so he can be taller than Elizabeth Debicki. <laughs> so great. Elizabeth Debicki be tall, but not taller. Yes. And also, it's just a great moment of, like, I don't know, because Elizabeth Debicki is so tall, like, she does have this kind of, like, kind of commanding presence, almost, and having that character kind of be above her, both literally, but also, like, the way he makes her, like, he, they're working for him to get Rocket. It's a great kind of setup of like how menacing this villain is, but um, I don't know. I, I just I just think I like the bits that he has. I love the little dog that Adam Warlock gets later on. I think that that's a f- very funny bit. It was originally going to be a cat. Mm, okay. But then Captain Marvel came along. They already... It was like, no, I'm going to change it to like this weird like fuzzy brown alien thing. It looks like a brownie. It looks like so adorable. <laughs> it does. And then I, I like that stuff, and I also like him flying around. I think that's actually shot very well. Mm-hmm. The moment I saw that first scene where he flies in, I'm just like, oh, this is how he's going to do Superman in this fucking right. rules. Mm-hmm. That's where I was immediately just like, sign me the fuck up for Legacy. <laughs> I need a whole movie of that. Um, and I think he works solidly. He's developed throughout, and I think he gets like some solid stuff in the finale. I just agree with you that like he's kind of a, a cherry. We already have a cherry. I don't need two cherries. Right. Yeah, but two cherries are still sweet <laughs> on the Sunday, uh, and yeah, he, he all it all culminates obviously with like all these people who we've mostly talked about. I would say because we're running long. Yeah, I think before we get to the ending, ending of the movie, is there anything else we haven't mentioned that you want to shout out about this movie? Um, I, I mean, all I think all the set pieces look great. Um, I, I think that like. We talked a little bit about like kind of the, just the whole gray sludge thing of the MCU and just how like really uh, just another thing is an issue I have I think with a lot of the modern Marvel stuff is that like it just doesn't feel like maybe because of like just the way that these movies are made it just doesn't feel like the directors are given the kind of creative freedom to make these things look as dynamic as they should maybe there's a bit of that like indie director who's made a movie for makes a $200 million movie, right? Like, that doesn't... Of course, there's that angle to it, but... Mm -hmm. Just, this movie has such dynamic, you know, action scenes. They look incredible. You know, they don't look like the greatest action scenes of, you know, they don't... They're not Avatar 2 level of, like, incredible CGI. But again, like, I think they look great. But they also do have two cyborgs. One is like a falcon guy and one is a pig, voiced by Judy Greer. Yes. Which I just got to say, one slight mark against this that reminds me of the MCU. Get Judy Greer to play like a cyborg pig henchman and you'll give her a lot to do. That's true. She says a couple things. It's just like, what? <laughs> Come on. Even as a cyborg pig, yeah. Judy Greer needs justice. That's true. I swear. 
this is a pro Judy Career podcast. Um, <laughs> in every way. Um, in every way. No, but yeah, I, I just think that the the action scenes look great, and, and they're genuinely ambitious for what they're trying to do. Like they feel like we talked about like the one the 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 flesh planet thing, but just the final set piece and like the uh just him destroying counter earth and all, all of that stuff and the way that that moves right of like i love that this movie is like so much of it is focused on like where characters are right yes. where like nebula is like hey bring me the ship and then drax is like um so about that we left the ship we're not on the ship anymore we're right next to you right, we're right next to you <laughs> we're gonna get on the ship to save peter but peter falls that shot of him like falling and like uh, like you know, it's so his great. brilliant escape plan. It's, it's so great, but like, yeah, just the way that it's focused on that. There's just it just feels so different to the way that a lot of the action sequences in these movies are handled, and and I just found that so refreshing and just so exciting to watch. It has the structure of a farce as well, which is what's so great. Yeah, with them going... With the whole bit about just like, them. right, we're on the ship. It's like, hey, where are you on the ship? It's like, no, we're, I got off the ship. You got off the ship? We're on the ship trying to save you. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's so great. And I don't know, yeah, just the way you see all of them move throughout that sequence of, of the way that they, yeah, are in these different locations. It's just, it's, it's great. On their new ship, which do you know what the name of their new ship is in this, Brian? I do not, because it was called the Milano, but I'm assuming it's not right. that one. No. New ship. New ship, who does? I'll give you a hint. It's named after an artist who had a song featured in a Guardians of the Galaxy film. <sighs> Man, that really <laughs> does not... <laughs> um, Arguably the most famous one. Oh, fuck. Why am I blanking on all of the mo- the the music in these movies now? Just tell me. There's no way I'm going to get it. <laughs> First movie, Moon Age Daydream, by Mr. David oh, Bowie. David. Is it the namesake of the Bowie. The Bowie. That's great. That is great. Rest in peace, David Bowie. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, that's a, a fun little bit. I'm, okay, you know what? Another bit, I will say, one of my few other problems with this movie, the one joke that I think falls completely flat and feels the most like an MCU bit is during this climax when the high evolutionary comes on and then... Peter proceeds to call him like a robocop looking asshole. <laughs> and then he crushes. It's like, he hung up. Fine joke. Fun joke. And then Gamora has to pause and say, you think? Uh, like, uh, you think? And it's like, yeah. Uh, Kevin Feige was literally just like, James, I'll let you do anything, but I get how to get one joke in here. One Marvel joke. There, I mean, there's a few moments I think that lean into that a bit more. Um, okay. For me, I, but 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 they're not. I don't linger. No, what are they? We've been very effusively positive. I think you're. <sighs> well, I mean, you like this a bit less than even I do. Well, well, I mean, that's the thing is that like because there's just a few of them and they don't really linger in my mind. Really, like I I don't really. They don't register because I think the there's just so much other good stuff around them, and I think that the writing. You know, around it is so good that like. Those moments happen, I roll my eyes, and then I'm like, Ugh, whatever. Like, you know, you, you gotta take something with these Marvel You think movies. it's the only one that, like, stops the movie dead to do it. That's why I think that's the most egregious right, example, sure. at the very least. Right, I agree, yeah. <laughs> um, but there isn't as much of that in this movie, which I think, weird, considering right. this is, like, 
the the comedy stuff, right? Like this is this is the one that's wild and weird and wacky, but it has the least amount of that, which is it's just yeah, it's crazy. But but it still has a fair amount of that. Like like the metaphor bit with Drax, I think is very funny. It's an incredibly hilarious sequence. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, all of the stuff where Drax just like pummels that one guy for the motorcycle, and it's just like Mantis get down. It's like, are we gonna go back to the ship? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> And they go off, and she's like, "Why are you such an asshole?" <laughs> I love that she like gets on. He go. He rides off, and then she's like, "Drax," but then doesn't get off because like she can't get off. <laughs> she's on the motorcycle. No. That's great. I was gonna say I love the way that the his headquarters looks like that red like pyramid looking thing looks fucking insane. Wonderful set. Great set. Yeah, and that whole sequence where they fall like. This is a big thing with the MCU that we've been talking about. We've talked about a lot of the practical stuff. But I would say Guardians, bar none, has the most consistent CG effects over these. Oh, absolutely. All these movies. Like, the first Guardians looks a bit rough now. Mm -hmm. Like, a a bit. But two and three, look, it's just like, these are such phenomenally well-realized characters that still at the same time exist in a practical world and interact with practical people. And, like... It just feels like, even for, like, those big creatures, like the Judy Greer and the Big Bird guy, there is, like, a big guy who's in, like, mocap and has, like, a giant fucking popsicle stick with, at the very top, like, the actual eyeline for this bird guy. Right. I, I mean, <laughs> like, crazy. It, it is. And, like, as much as we, like, we talked about earlier, kind of the whole, like, Marvel is having a bit of a visual effects crisis right now. Um, which they should pay their visual effects artists and their visual effects artists should unionize. But um, yes. you would not really think that watching this movie if you didn't know about it. Like, incredible job from the visual effects team on this movie. Like, I think this movie looks stunning. Like, those sequences with Rocket, like the flashbacks, are so great. And you're watching these, like, CGI animals and you would never be able to tell, really. Or, or rather, you would you just don't register that they're CGI. They're just, they feel so real and the the effects work on them is so great it's sadly a smart decision to put them in that particular setting right because they don't move around a lot yeah it's a bit darker right yes but i think that's that's a great decision on a filmmaking level and that's the thing i think that's because like all these elements are so well lit and everything that at the same time when we can get sillier like when we have these like pig and a fucking bird and all these other different animal creatures coming up like that one shot of the guy, one rising from like inside of the fucking ship, and it looks yeah. like a big like dragon type thing. Like it looks so cool. It's, yeah, <laughs> it, it's it like the the simplest way I can put this, and it looks like a movie, you know. And like <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but like a lot of the other MCU stuff looks like just t. It looks like it's made for TV. It looks like stuff that just you know a lot of been like. A lot smarter people than me have like written about like the way that digital and like th- this kind of all digital world has kind of hurt the way that movies look. But like, yeah, that shot. I know, I know exactly the shot you're talking about because I was like, oh my god, this looks incredible. This does not look like a Marvel movie, right? With all the derogatory in all the derogatory ways that I can I can mean that. It looks like a movie. A moment I love, which we didn't really talk about that much, is the um the moment where Rocket escapes and also claws the absolute shit out of the High Evolutionary's face, the yes. scream that Bradley Cooper like lets out after, um, 
What's her? Lila. Lila. After she's... Linda Cardellini herself. Yes. After she's been killed is so heartbreaking. And, like, yeah. it, it's incredible that, like, Cooper is able to do that with, like, just his voice and obviously, like, the performance by Sean Gunn, which we talked about earlier. But it is... It's one of the moments that genuinely, like, stopped me and was like, oh, my God, I'm getting, like, really emotional. Um, yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite moments of the movie. Big shout also to, you know, we haven't mentioned them by name, but Lila the Honor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Teefs. My favorite. The Walrus. I love him. <laughs> he's, he's very, yeah. He has like an Eeyore energy. I have been thinking. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And Floor, who is like the most terrifying, I would say. A little, but also, yeah. So cute on like, in a very sad way. Yeah. Very like innocent. They're all kind of they're all like that, which is just Yeah, which is why that, that sequence hits like so much harder. Yeah, especially with like after Rocket like does his scream and then the high of the sharing mocks him and then all the scratching stuff. And which that was like truly like and, <laughs> horrific. And the way it's shot where it like there's a shot of like his mouth and you see like blood, but then like the rest of the yeah. shot is just like this blurry, like it, it looks really interesting. Like someone made a filmmaking decision that wasn't cowtown. Can, can you imagine? Um, <laughs> but this ending, let's let's talk about it. Uh, so after all of this has happened, and you know everybody ends up safe, none of the guardians die, which I expected honestly going into this movie. Same. At least one of them was going to die, uh, but no, all our space friends get together, and they say goodbye to Gamora, and they're like, you know what? I, Peter Quill. Gotta take some time. Gotta go back home. Me with my grandpa, Greg Henry, of the James Gunn Sable, who is in every Guardians movie, including in two. Is he? he the same character is like on like when remember when the Dairy Queen actually starts like exploding oh, on of Earth? Of course, yes. You know, he's like in a car, just like oh no. Right. Okay. I remember now. Yeah. Yes. Um. But then yeah, he's just like I gotta go meet up with him, and then Mantis is like you know what? Yeah, I gotta go too, and then. Drax is just like, I'll go with you. <laughs> and it's like, no, you. I want to go by myself. That's the whole point. I love, yeah, the line that he has of like, you need someone to protect you. Like, not in a bad way, just because like, what does he say? Like, because of your like stupid decisions or just something? Because of your weakness. Yes. And stupid, <laughs> you're stupid in your weak decisions. Um, and then it was like, no, you got to stay here, Drax, because you got to help me take care of all these kids that we saved. Would you even talk about that whole sequence and how great all that is? Yeah during the climax and how it escalates like all right we gotta save drax and mantis like no we're here but we gotta save these kids and then, oh we gotta save the animals yeah. and then they're all you know hanging out there though and uh, all that stuff also we glossed over it but drax actually talking to the kids and you realize just, like what his actual value to the group is and it's so like empathetic and beautiful and sweet and then later on it's just like nebula says you weren't born to be a destroyer. He's born to be a dad. Born to be a dad. Drax oh. the dad. <laughs> Drax the dad. <laughs> if he returns, he won't return. Spoilers. But Jesus not coming. <laughs> <He's> <laughs> honestly, thank God because he's such a great yeah. actor. And yeah. but this is a great send off for him, just ending on this note for his character mm-hmm. that he's a dad truly because we established his backstory. Then we didn't give him any chance to even like hit Thanos in Endgame. Bullshit. Um, but anyway, uh, I'll see you in hell, yeah, so brothers. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But but yeah, but that whole ending like works so wonderfully for him. And Nebula ends up saying like I'm gonna run the city because she has this empathy that's going on still. The city that includes fucking Kraglin. Yeah. And Cosmo. He gets to he gets to wield the Yondu's like arrow thing because he can't like do it at the beginning. With the confidence of the ghost of Yondu, <sighs> briefly, Rooker had to come back for a shot, guys. I'm Mary Poppins, yo. <laughs> Maybe my favorite line reading of the entire MCU. Maybe. Like. <laughs> pretty pretty good. <laughs> pretty good odds on that. Um, but yeah, and then Kraglin getting his arc and Cosmo being a good dog. Yes. She's a good dog. <laughs> and that running gag throughout in the cameo table. Yep. Of course, Howard. Of like Howard the Duck. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lloyd Kaufman, the main guy at Troma. Yeah. Yeah, all, like, they all get to be, like, led by Nebula. And then, yeah, it's just like, but who's going to lead the Guardians? Rocket. It's going to be Rocket. Baby. They it's... do the fucking Ravager salute, which I never thought I would feel so invested in. Right. <laughs> until after Volume 2, where I'm just like, oh my god, the Ravagers. And now they, they carry that over, and it's so sweet that Rocket gets to be this leader. And then Groot says his whole thing, just like, I love you guys. Telepathically connects with all these people because he loves them. They're his family, Brian. Yeah, and like I love this ending because, like, like you, I was expecting like one of them is gonna die, right? Like, yeah. But of course, we are. This is Marvel. The illusion of change, all of that stuff. I find it so much more compelling that rather than the the, the finality being, well, one of us is dead, so we can't do this anymore. Blah blah blah. That it is just like breaking up the band. You know, like that, that's kind yeah. of how they treat it. Just the sense that we can't let these characters move on, right? And of course, that whole Marvel thing, it was like, they're going to bring back Iron Man, they're going to bring back Captain America, Downey and Evans. I find it so much more compelling, this movie being like, these characters have moved on, they have gone beyond what we know them as. They need to move on from this, right? Like, we can move on. We don't need to keep bringing these fucking characters back and i just love this ending and i love how it ends with yeah not them dying but just them being in different places of their lives and moving on and like it's just so beautiful yeah i mean even though this movie does tease at the very end a star lord will return and like which of course he'll return of course of course he will yeah yes. and like i'm fine with that you know like Bring Pratt for a movie, have him show up. That that's fun, whatever. But I I just I love just the way that this ends and the way that it is an ending. And like I'm sure that you know Kevin and company are already figuring out ways to bring back Star Lord and whatever. But like Kevin and company spelled with two Ks. Yes, for each word. <laughs> um, to me, this feels like a very true ending as much of an ending as we can get with Marvel being this ongoing thing and all of that stuff, but it, it, it's the closest we can get. Just an exclamation point with the dog days are over. Our ending needle drop, which like Florence and the Machine was a band I remember vaguely when I was born in high school. They like first became a thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember like, oh, these are fun songs. My kind of lost track. And then just hearing this is like the ending bit. It works so beautifully for these characters to like just dance and let off some fucking steam yeah. to this incredibly fun song that's like jovial. And then when it gets like melancholy, 
It's for that lead up with Peter on Earth. Go and see his grandpa. Yeah. Go see his grandpa again. It's, yeah, it's such a great ending. I never thought I would cry over the guy who just appears in every James Gunn movie. Because that's, that's the thing with, like, a lot of people who are in this movie are people that James Gunn is just using a lot of things. Sure. He loves doing that repertory cast shit. Mm-hmm. And then Greg Henry's the guy who's just like, oh, it's him. He's like an Easter egg. He's like Stan Lee, you know, in the MCU parlance. Right. R.I.P. Stan. R.I.P. Who, no matter what the movie, the cameo was kind of fun. Yes. His cameo in, in The Avengers is still, I think, really great. Where he's like, superheroes in New York? No way. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> um, I do love his one in Volume 2, where he's with the Watchers. <laughs> and implying that it's just like all of his different characters are from different universes. Yes. <laughs> I think it's a fun one. Um, though they can't beat Into the Spider-Verse. But that's a different that's discussion yeah. for an entirely different day. Um, because, yeah, this this dance happens, and all our characters are off on their separate ways. And, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's such a phenomenal way to just truly add a sense of finality just in terms of, like, the characters just moving on to a different part of their lives. On a crass level, you could see it being, like, just an open door. Like, we can bring back any of them if we want sure. But there's still just the, like, now, nah, like, the band broke up, and there's some new members, like, in the mid-credits scene. That's cute. I with Warlock, the one little girl. Really love that mid credit scene because it is just them talking about like music. And <laughs> I love the little girls like Britney Spears and Corn. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta give it up to the man Garth Brooks. <laughs> yeah, I, it is great, and I lo- I I genuinely like that put that like mid credit scene because it like I don't know feels like a very fun little like. And here's what they're doing right now. Like, here's how these characters are kind of hanging out and doing their thing. And I, I love yeah. it. It doesn't, it's no, like, it, there's no setup for fucking phase six and the multiverse or whatever. Get the fuck out of here. Perfect. It, yeah. That's yeah. really great. It's a really great just actual sense of finality, which we should just talk about maybe as, as a postscript now that we're nearly done with the movie before we get to, like, final thoughts. Um... Marvel Cinematic Universe is in a weird time as we're recording this particular episode. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and we are recording this shortly after the Marvels has opened mm-hmm. to not not great opening weekend. No. And it feels like it's maybe kind of a trend considering we've had like Eternals bomb horribly. I think Ant-Man and, uh, Mania didn't do as well. Yes, bombed horribly. Right. Um, and the Marvels now. Right. And it is this weird thing of, like, they've had, like, these bom- these kind of misses, but they've had the hits, right? They had the No Way Home, right? They got people right. in there because of the nostalgia. They had Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and this. Black Widow's, like, a weird situation. Yeah, Black Widow is a, yeah, um, also a bad movie, but. <laughs> yeah, um, honestly. I think the big thing with Guardians Volume 3 is, like, this is where it truly felt to me. Like, after I saw this in Dolby... I just was like, had tears in my eyes. Tears. Tears from the last, like, five or so minutes of this movie. Just crushing me on, like, a sweetness level of just, like, our friends are from space are gonna be okay. Yeah. And it's so good. And then I was just like, I don't ever need to see another one of these fucking Marvel movies in a theater. <laughs> if I do watch them, they will be on Disney Plus if I happen to have it. Um, right. At that particular point in time. Um, like when the Marvels is on Disney Plus, I don't know when 
two days. I was going to say, yeah. Uh, like... The box office. Um, I'll watch it in the background while I'm doing other things and be like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it is very crazy to think about. And I thought, I thought about this last night as I was doing my double feature of like, of those two movies. But like, it's weird to think that like once or twice a year, right? Obviously during the summer, maybe during the fall, you go and see a Marvel movie. During February, like fucking <laughs> ant <Right. Quantum. laughs> But like, you would go and see these movies and they felt like events and people, you would go and people would be wearing their Marvel shirts and they would be so excited for this. And yeah, who would wear a Marvel shirt? <laughs> Thomas is wearing a Guardians of the Galaxy shirt. Um, has the little mixtape on it. It's, it's the one cool. Marvel shirt I own. <laughs> it's the one I own. It is admittedly a cool shirt. Um, Thank you. But I mean, I, I agree with you. Like, other than like how it, what I mentioned, like the interest in Black Panther I had and Doctor Strange, this does feel kind of like the last gasp of the MCU. Like it, it truly does feel just like, at least for me right now, right? Like I'm sure they're do they'll do restructuring, but like it's really the antithesis of so much that's wrong with the MCU. That getting to see this is kind of like you said. Like I'm like great, I got this. It's a fantastic movie. It's one of the best that they've ever made. And now I'm okay. Um, yeah, like you. Like, I, I didn't go see the Marvels. I'll watch it when it's on Disney+. And I just, yeah, don't have any interest in, like, any of their other stuff. But What, you don't have interest in Thunderbolts? Oh, man, yeah. With the, with that thing's gotten delayed, like, 500 times. and the, the Or Blade, a movie that has had no production problems at all. Yeah, I mean, look, someone, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase that, a, a popular tweet that went around, but like, if they can't figure out how to make a movie where Mar- Mahershala Ali wears cool sunglasses and kills vampires, like, what's the point of all this? Like, it feels like such an easy way to do it. So much so it's been done three times previously. Right, exactly. And twice pretty well. <laughs> exactly. And... You know, Fantastic Four, they're going to do, and they're going to do X-Men. Uh, Pedro Pascal announced. He did, just he... As we're here. I don't think that's good casting. <laughs> I mean, look, I was off this the moment I found out the director was going to be Matt Shankman. Yes. Of WandaVision, which is a show that I liked, but also, like, he mostly does TV stuff. Right. Like, that's his entire career, and, you know, there can be some very good directors on television shows. Of course. Uh, he doesn't strike me as one, necessarily. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it also just like such a bland choice. And that's the problem is they keep exactly. making these bland, flaccid choices for announcements. And I'm like, why would I care about this? Right. Like, I care about Aubrey Plaza, but I don't give a single shit about seeing that fucking Agatha spinoff show. And I love fucking... Uh, Catherine, Catherine Hahn. Hahn. Yeah. Yeah. I love Hell Catherine yeah. Hahn, but I'm still just like... Like witches, okay. Yeah, I don't know. And like, and again, when like it's either they go with someone so safe like that, who like, no offense to to Matt Matt Shankman, but like, who I don't think is gonna make a very visually interesting movie, or you know, this is a very famous story of Lucretia Martel, the uh, Argentinian yes. filmmaker who was attached to make Black Widow, and then she asked about the action sequences, and they told her, "Don't worry about it." We'll take care of those. And naturally, she had the reaction of, 
but I'm the director. Shouldn't I be doing the action sequences? That's kind of why I sign up for this thing. That's what's interesting. And I remember Ava DuVernay also had a very similar quote. Yes. About that as well. Yeah, because that's the big thing, like the previs stuff. Exactly. That like is very rampant and especially a lot of the lesser Marvel movies. Yeah. And I just feel like I don't know, at the same time, what's fascinating right now to me about the MCU, the only thing is just on like at this point, it feels like we're in the late 60s Hollywood era of the superhero era. Right. Honestly. Sure. Where mm-hmm. it's just going to be like, oh, these movies that don't do that. That's why, as much as James Gunn, love your movies, love this movie in particular, I'm really unsure how that fucking DC thing's going to go. I believe Superman Legacy is probably going to make a really solid movie. Sure. It's like, cool, great Superman movie. But I don't know after that. <laughs> I don't know how that's going to work. Yeah. And I mean, like, we will we will talk in depth about DC. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about uh, the 2016 Suicide Squad at some point. But um, <laughs> Well, I mean, I'll just say, you know, this December, we may get wet. We might, we might visit the seven, the seven oceans. Um, <laughs> then that might be the... Because that's going to be the eulogy for that particular series anyway. That might be what that ends up. Exactly. Right. Like, I have... <laughs> more positive feelings on the DC films than most people, I think. And even I am kind of, yeah, like I, I'm interested in his Superman movie uh, from, from what I know about comic books, he seems to really get them in a way that I, you know, I think is interesting. And he seems to really be interested in like, I, I just love the way that in, in, with this and with the suicide squad and peacemaker, he's able to just really focus on outsider weirdo characters and where you would be, where anyone would ask you, like, why would you make a movie about this this comic book character? And he he's able to make it really interesting. Um, so I'm interested in that. But yeah, that the DC thing is a whole whole other thing. <laughs> yes, I don't know if we do. We could have done Warner Brothers a hundred years, but uh, I think they fucked that I up think for themselves. They really fucked it up for themselves. <laughs> yeah. Um. But but yeah. So you know what? Final thoughts. Brian, let's get to him. Any final thoughts on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three? Yes, um, I love this movie, and I, I can say that like there are so many of the very little of these that I actually like or even love. Like I would say of the ones that I love, uh, Iron Man Three, which of course this movie, the Avengers movie, and Black Panther. But I, again, some of the a lot of the visual effects sequences in that look really dodgy and, and volume two i'm sorry that one as well but like only those and i i just really didn't expect to become reinvested into this franchise what 32 movies in like it, it i was out and then they pulled me back in and like <laughs> it, it feels like i said earlier it feels like a movie but it, it does it feels like a time when you know disney and Marvel specifically, was taking risks, but also was making these really big $200 million movies that actually felt like they cost that much. Like, you really get a sense of how expensive this movie was in all the sets, all the costumes, all the makeup, everything, all of that stuff. And it's it's great. I, I love this movie. I, I really just didn't expect to love a Marvel movie, especially in 2023, but... Yeah, here we are. It's just a great movie. It has an incredible sense of finality. Um, 
a great villain, one of the better MCU villains, I would say. Maybe like off the top of my head, maybe top five, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and like just right next to Malekith. <laughs> who I don't actually hate that much, to be fair. Um, but I just yeah, feel not, nothing. He's not. He's not a good one. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good movie, though. Yeah. I, I will still stand by that. Um, mm. But yeah, it, it is the culmination of like James Gunn making this movie about these these weirdos, and it paid off with the first one. And it, this is just the culmination point of all of that. There's a debt that like the MCU owes the Guardians movies in a way of like, like I said earlier that of like it proving that they could go wilder and weirder and all that stuff. But like the book I mentioned earlier, the MCU book goes into a lot of the behind the scenes like conflict between like Marvel and like the creative committee side of things. And mm-hmm. it uh, in the book, like they describe that they used Guardians like as an example of like, see, like we can do weird things and people will care and people will support us um and it's yeah it's great to get this movie especially right now yeah i love it it's great what about you um loved it. it's one of my favorite films of the year currently in general um and i would say i agree with you it's definitely one of the few of the mcu that i truly love my number five is iron man three yes. rules great movie my number four is Black Panther. Same. My number three is Guardians Volume 1. My number two is Guardians Volume 3. And number one is Volume 2. The only one that I believe I have rated at. Five stars. Wow. None of them for me are, are, a, are a five star level. But I mean, number five, I have Guardians Volume 2. Number four, Black Panther. So we share that one. Number three, The Avengers. Number two... Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And number one is Iron Man 3. It's a weird franchise. It is. It's But the sub-franchise within of Guardians is still tremendous. It's my favorite. Just like of this MCU experiment of like recent big blockbuster cinema. Of just like what you can do on like a massive scale. But have like very intimate character focused stories. Especially this one. Where like James Gunn said that his sort of thing for the trilogy is. The first movie is about the mother. Literally in terms of. Peter Quell. Right. Second one's about the father. And the third one is about the self. That's good. And that's good. I think, yeah, I think that's really accurate about this one. It feels truly like a self-examination of like, we've been around for like 10 years. We've encountered weird superheroes that may have slightly put us out of character for a second. Um, <laughs> and, but also like all these creatures and like Peter Quill's whole family history and all this other stuff. And it feels like truly by the time you get to the end of this, it just feels like, man, these great people have had a lot of fun together, but they can't be together forever. Yeah. That's, that's so great. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. <sighs> what a movie. What a movie. Let's get to our weekly segment that we got to get to now of uh, Between the Lines.
So on every episode of Between the Lines, uh, you know, Brian and I like to talk about another movie that we recommend in terms of, uh, you know, something related to the movie we're talking about, or, you know, maybe another choice for the end for new for a partic- this particular miniseries. And so, uh, Brian, you're going first. What's your recommendation this week for Between the Lines? I wanted to go with something that was from, obviously, like, not just big company Disney, but I wanted to do something from their subsidiaries that was a recently released movie. And I wanted to go with a 20th Century Fox. I'm not calling it that, Disney. You can't you can't make me call it 20th Century Studios. Um, yeah, so I wanted to go with something from there. And uh, it feels appropriate, because I'm going with a film from Ridley Scott. He released it a couple years ago, and uh, it's The Last Duel. Um, did you see it? No, you didn't. And really knows you didn't see it. <laughs> um, but The Last Duel, um, which is his another medieval epic from Ridley Scott, who I just can't stress this enough. He is 85 years old. He is going to be 86 yes. in two weeks. And it is insane that he made this movie, which is fantastic and is like, has at the spry age of 83. <laughs> right. Like <laughs> insane. And during a pandemic, like yes. insane. I mean, to do a little bit of Ridley talk, I'm just fascinated by him because of course he's got Napoleon coming out and then like he is doing gladiator two, which stopped because of the strikes, but I'm, I'm sure he's like probably like finished it by now. (laughs) Um, but, and then he's prepping now for a Western that he's making. And it, it, it's just insane that he is in his late eighties and he is making not just like movies consistently, but big epic movies that require like a lot of work put into them. And, I love The Last Duel. This movie is fantastic. I I mean, from, like, the sort of Rashomon-style, like, narrative that it has, which is is really great and is really, like, surprising. I I just didn't expect it to take that sort of structure of, like, you know, the different perspectives. Um, But Jodie Comer is phenomenal in this movie. I I mean, like, probably the best performance in in the movie, in my opinion, but... Really, everyone's great. I mean, Damon, who, like, is having a great era of his career right now. Driver gets to play a real, like, scummy character, which is great to see. And, uh, of course, we got Ben. We got Ben Affleck. Just playing just the sleaziest, like, lord. He's just great. An incredible supporting performance from him. But I just, yeah, I loved this movie. Um... I'm fascinated by Ridley Scott just in general, but I really loved this movie more than I was even expecting because I was just like, eh, Ridley Scott, whatever. I love the cast, but I don't know if, I don't know if I trust him to make this story, but it is, it's really impactful. It feels so visceral and so just electric like there's so much energy put into this movie you would just not expect him to be in his 80s directing it yeah I I love it I'm just so happy that Ridley Scott gets to make movies right now and uh Disney I implore you let him make another alien movie come on like just just let this is a public message this is a a PSA (laughs) 
<laughs> just I know you got Noah Hawley's making a show, and I know you got the Fede Alvarez movie. No, let Michael Fassbender's back in movies, right? Get him, get Ridley, let him make a movie, let him let him finish his trilogy, Alien Covenant fucking rules. Um, but yeah, my recommendation is the last duel, but it was a I had to hide that <laughs> that subliminal PSA in there. <laughs> that, that was a secret, there was a secret mission to this, and you succeeded. <laughs> It's back on the menu, boys. Um, but yeah, I've seen the last duel. I saw it theatrically, like a good boy. Yeah, nice. Um, especially considering this was also like you know because Ridley Scott, like you mentioned, is a fascinating filmmaker, one of the most prolific directors alive. Yeah. And this is also, I believe, the same fall where I saw House of Gucci, right? Mm-hmm. Which I did not enjoy very much. It's not as good, but <laughs> no. Um, but at the same time, The Last Duel is an incredible film that I think, it's like you mentioned, the Rashomon style, the storytelling, the way all these actors perform this. Jodie Comer, I agree, is so amazing. This whole movie, I believe, robbed of any Oscar nominations, but particularly her. Oh, yeah. Uh, just a tremendous performance from her. Um, and it is also, like, very darkly funny at points, especially, like, Matt Damon is kind of, like, a funny character in terms of, oh, you seem introduced initially with, like, his perspective, just like I am the best possible person here and each succeeding part just reveals like oh you're a fucking idiot <laughs> you're so stupid <laughs> yeah so good it, it's the way that that movie the movie doles out information on its characters is so is so genius it's really incredible and like and also the final fight between Damon the la- the t- and Driver. The titular last duel. The titular duel. <laughs> it, it's the titular role. It, it's so visceral and so like gnarly where like a thing I find very interesting about Ridley Scott is that he is often a Hollywood director, right? Like imagine a Hollywood director. He makes Hollywood movies, right? Big blockbusters, whatever. But then he also is an art an artist, right? He's made Alien and Blade Runner and like has movies like that, but he exists in that space and he's such a yeah, such a fascinating director. And I think, like, th- it, that movie is a great example of, like, it is a very entertaining movie and it's got battles, it's got all that stuff, but it is also really, really well directed and really well handled, I think. Yes, would concur. But now, it's time for my recommendations. Yes. Which, you know, this, some may say this stretches. No. What I'm about to recommend. No, no. never. Um, it is, you know, the breezy. <laughs> Very quick, 471-minute feature film broke up into three parts that aired over Thanksgiving a couple years ago. Uh, The Beatles, Get Back. Yes. Oh, Beatlemania is rising in the studio. On this Zoom call is Beatlemania. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, we are talking about The Beatles, Get Back, which I didn't watch until fairly recently. Um, If you're unaware somehow, um, on Disney+, Plus, they released this restored re-edit of the documentary Let It Be from the 70s, all that footage uh, that had been left over that was collected by Peter Jackson, who restored it to crystal clear HD. Yeah. Uh, that just feels like you're immersed in the room as you watch the Beatles start to make Let It Be and see their gradual breakup of the band. See, it was relevant to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Not just because it's Disney. Damn. But it's bringing them the band story. Yeah. And I was worried, actually, I avoided this kind of, because, like, my worry is, you know, with the original Let It Be, that was kind of, like, a famous depiction, like, this is what 
the Beatles breaking up was for like so long. That was the narrative. Right. And then all this extra footage just unravels the fact that like that descent was there with these people. Like even like in the, from my understanding of the let it be original documentary, which I have not seen because it's very hard to find. Right. Um, it's a movie that like, uh, you know, depicts, you know, the Beatles breaking up very quickly, apparently, and very much blames it on Yoko Ono to some degree. And I think that descent with Yoko is there from the band. Like, I don't think that's completely invented. But kind of thrusting it on her as much as just looking at these guys initially practicing in this, like, studio where Ringo's supposed to shoot a movie in, like, a week, which is, like, there's tension there. Right. Of just, like, are they going to make it? <laughs> Even though we know they made it. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, it's just interesting to see like that whole process and slowly realize like these guys are having fun and they still are like friends to some degree, but they're not great creative partners anymore. It just feels like something's off. Yeah. It's not like they're being antagonistic, but just there's the vibes not right. Uh, as George very much establishes. And from there you just see like the very nature of just like how it broke up and how it was kind of, I guess more bittersweet than we were given credit to. It wasn't like extremely tumultuous. Right. As much as just like, yeah, we kind of drifted apart. We've been—they did, you know, consistent albums for like what ten years, right? The Beatles, uh, seven years, which is the crazy thing. So, oh, yeah. right. sixty-three to, to to seventy, basically. Yeah, right. But yeah, just seeing like how that entire saga just ended when it did, right? Just very naturally, and how it truly ends on a big show-stop finale of what is this an? An AI song from after John died. Oh no, I'm sorry. It was a different Disney Plus thing. Let me do the. Oh yes, okay, get it back. Um, but no, yeah, I I was still surprised like how invested I was in this, especially because like I was intimidated by that length mm-hmm. and it just like really flew by. I watched it over a Saturday. Yeah, got up on Saturday morning and in between some things like I would take breaks between episodes, but. Just dive right in and just like, yeah, it's a tremendous experience I'd recommend for anybody out there. And this is definitely something in the age of streaming, which this was explicitly released on. I want a physical release. Oh my god, I yes. want it. This is one of my favorite anything movie, TV show, document, whatever you want to call it. Anything of this very of this decade so far. It's one of my favorite. It, it's very funny that... Because we you we talked about this uh, recently when you watched it, and also just kind of other things spurred on a kind of Beatle binge that I've been going on. I, I've been listening to a lot hey, of Beatles. Your Beatle and binge. <laughs> um, and I've started rewatching. Uh, I put on like a little bit of the of of part two, and it is tremendous. It is like one of the best experiences. I I think. I've had in like the last few years, like really getting to like see them just m- hang out mostly. Like that's really the, the stuff I love, mm-hmm. right? Like it is this breaking down of like the Beatles mythos, right? We think of them as these mythic figures who were these like m- musical geniuses who did all this stuff. And then you watch this documentary and a lot of it is them like fucking around and like, just being four lads from Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it, it, it's very fun. Yeah, it, it's so great to get to see them just make music and hang out. But also, there's genuinely great moments of getting to watch them. Like, I think you watch Paul like figure out "Let It Be" or "Get Back." One of those two songs. Like he 
It's a get back. That's the big one. Over, that's the running thread of the whole thing. That's like the recurring joke. Right. Eventually, we're just like, this is it. Yeah, but him like figuring out that song in real time and you just watching him like work through it, his like process is like incredible. And you see it in like real time. And it's like, you know, him writing these like iconic songs on the whole like Yoko Ono thing. I, I think what's interesting about this documentary is how like it treats like the whole Yoko Ono thing as like, John and Yoko were together and they just really wanted to spend all the time together. Yeah. And that's fine, but it it did result right. in like the end of the Beatles, but it's partially, but like it it it's a fascinating documentary and I I'm of the mindset of it could be longer. Make a longer cut, Peter. I would watch it. You know, we just ha- have some of that deleted footage on the 4K release. Exactly. There you go. And you know what? I would also say include the original Let It Be. Because I sure. think that still needs to be restored to some extent. Right. Just restore that and then put it on the fucking disc five, Peter. <laughs> Which, I mean, I'll say this also. Like, the modern Peter Jackson era of like him doing these documentaries like this and they should not grow old. Um, great stuff. And, you know, if he wants to do this and not hang out with people after the Hobbit movies, I get it, Peter. You know, we need our time. There's a... I, I'll never forget when they announced that, like... Because it was going to be a movie, and they were going to release it theatrically. And then I, yes. I remember the video of him announcing that it's going to be a series. Um, it was, I believe, at the end of 2020. And uh, it's this video of him going, like, Yeah, we're working on it. Um, we don't have COVID here, <laughs> but back over where you guys are, you guys have COVID, but we in New Zealand don't have any more COVID. So we, I can work on this thing freely and do whatever. And it, it was a great, just like little jab. <laughs> I think of like, you know, living in New Zealand. Very great. Yes. Peter. Godspeed. Oh, I love you. Well, I don't know what he's restoring now. It's like, well, we just released that fucking music video. We did do that. Great. Yeah. yeah. Great job, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, Let's repeat our titles for everybody out there. Uh, yeah, I had Ridley Scott's 2021 medieval epic, The Last Duel. And I had the 2021 as well. Miniseries slash over six hour long movie, <laughs> The Beatles Get Back. But yeah, so uh, we're going to be heading finally into the end. This is, I'm sure, going to be our longest episode. Uh, but we got to thank some people before we get out of here. We got to thank Burial Grid for our intro music. Purchase this music at burialgrid.com. Uh, thanks to Michelle Kyle for uh, our artwork. Find her at mishkyle96 on Twitter. And thanks to our supporters on Patreon. Thank you so much at patreon.com slash cinema number two letter, where for just $1 a month, you get access to bonus recordings that we do. Like we were talking about Ridley Scott just recently. We probably talked about Napoleon already. Absolutely. Hell yeah. It was a, around the Thanksgiving holiday where we covered, I'm sure, a bunch of movies. We're still unsure of what the format will exactly be for that. Right. We're talking about a couple November releases. Uh, and also at some point, you know, before the end of December, which we're in now, we'll have for our Disney series, our top 10 Disney songs. That's right. Just any song from a Disney product out there. Very curious to see how that goes. Top 10 of them. But um, yeah, yeah, we got all that coming up, and maybe another little uh, Christmas treat for you uh, related to the this, this season for the holiday season. It's the reason for that season. <laughs> but 
yeah, on, on that note, you know what, let's, uh, just so you can find us on uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Cinema Number 2 Letter, any other socials, Blue Sky and whatnot. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter and Letterboxes at Not the Who's Tommy, and I also do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at Film-Cred.com. Uh, yeah, and you can follow me on Twitter as well, uh, at B-R-Y-A-N-D-R-A-D-E and the number three. Uh, or you can follow me on Letterboxd. Uh, you can look at my MCU ranking on there. I have all 32 of them ranked. I'll probably keep updating it because it... Well, that all 32 of the 33 of them, sir. Oh, fuck. 33 of them. My apologies. I have not, I have not seen them. I hope you get fired for that blunder. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you can follow me on there. And you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows that are on the network? Uh, and you can also dig into the archives in our Podbean main feed for the first two seasons of the show, the previous episodes of this season, and all the old double-edged, double-bill stuff is over there on Podbean. And if nothing else, if you can't support us on the Patreon, that's cool. Money can be tight. But the free way to help us out is to rate, review, or just share the show around to give us more visibility so we can dance with everybody. <laughs> but let's just tease, you know, Brian, our next episode, we reach the E for egregious for our Disney miniseries. And we're covering an interesting one. We're going to be covering the Brad Bird film from 2015, Tomorrowland. Yep. Uh, a very interesting choice, I think, because we're picking more more egregious in terms of it was a big box office bomb uh, that cost a lot of money. But it'll be very interesting to talk about that because we neither of us have seen it since theaters in 2015, correct? Right, uh, that's true. But also, when I saw it in theaters initially, I wasn't thrilled about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am quite literally split on that movie. Yeah. It'll be very interesting to revisit. I'm, I'm very excited. Yes, we'll be talking about that and Brad Bird and all sorts of other stuff on the next episode. But until then, everybody, looks like uh, the dog days are over. Dog days. I love you guys. Are done. <laughs>